A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. You are about to enter a world where the unexpected... Many dangers exist on Arrakis. The unknown and incredible secrets have been kept on this planet. And the unbelievable meet. I see two great houses. Where kingdoms are built on Earth that moves. But we have worms sign the likes of which even God has never seen. And skies are filled with fire. The prophecy which will cleanse the universe and bring us out of darkness. Where a young warrior is called upon to free his people. A world that holds creation's greatest treasure. He who controls the spice controls the universe. And greatest terrors. This is genocide. The deliberate and systematic destruction of all life on Arrakis. The bed. <laughs> I will kill him! I will love you forever. And the magical. Father, the sleeper has awakened! Will have their final battle. the slightest pity or mercy. Emperor, we come for you. Doom, a spectacular journey through the wonders of space and the mysteries of time. From the boundaries of the incredible to the borders of the impossible. Now, Frank Herbert's widely read, talked about, and cherished masterpiece comes to the screen. Dino De Laurentiis presents Dune, a world beyond your experience, beyond your imagination. Okay, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. Um... I think that trailer does a really good job of really portraying how batshit crazy uh, Dune is. <laughs> I, I I think it's really the first time that I that I, that I feel like the trailer does a good job of that. <laughs> All right, well, <laughs> we have uh we have we have Conan Neutron. So I'm Conan Neutron. Uh, Conan Neutron's Protonic Reversal, uh, rock and roll music interview podcast. Conan Neutron, the Secret Friends, rock and roll band. Uh, Amateur, if not dilettante, uh, movie enthusiast for my entire life. I'm on Letterboxd. Most everything at Conan Neutron. We have Gene Bajelon. Yeah, I'm Gene Bajelon. You may know me from such shows as This Is Revolution and also this show, which I was on like yeah. last week. 
<laughs> yeah, you're, you're on both. You're on both of this week's uh, episodes, I think. Oh yeah, I, and glorious. also uh, from I'm gonna go on to Ben Burgess's show on Monday. So you know, and also if you are a fortunate student studying history at Missouri State University, and we have uh, Jeremy Salmon from the Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person podcast. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I host a podcast called Giving the Mic to the Wrong Person. Uh, been do, actually doing that longer than I think most of y'all have had a show. But anyway, um, How long? And, maybe uh, not. Maybe not Conan. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going on eight years now. Oh, OK. No, I, I started summer 2016. So, Boom, yeah, I think you, gotcha. you, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we, 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 but then again, we are only like we're sort of we're, we're sort of tri-weekly, I guess. It's one of those things where we don't really have a a, a, a a concrete recording schedule. It's more of like whenever I come up with an idea that I want to uh, talk to people about, and then however long my lazy ass wants to edit things. Uh, uh, note, kids, if you want to start your own podcast or YouTube show, do not do it all yourself. That that way lies madness. <laughs> all right, so Andy, I mean, you're kind of you're technically the co-host at this point of the show, so I don't. Yeah, just about. You know. <laughs> Uh, no, hey, uh, I know uh, yesterday, uh, because we are living in the future, and, and so that means that those of us who are watching now, or the patrons who might be watching it right when this comes up, see, hi, I'm doing this well here, yeah. uh, on Wednesday this week, which would be yesterday if you're, never mind, um, we're, that, that road is madness too, but yes, Wednesday is- There's a, there's a, there's a space ball joke in here too. When will then be now? I'm sorry. <laughs> Now it was always now. Um, <laughs> well, no, we just missed then. When? Just now. <laughs> when would there be now? Soon. Yeah, so Wednesday, we're doing Gunman on uh, Bad Takes with nice. uh, C. Derek Varn and I think Cole James Cash, but he hasn't confirmed yet. So we Wait, will know in the future. It's it's a fantastic. Movie. I actually watched it right after watching Dune because I wanted a coherent movie with Patrick Stewart in it. Hey, <laughs> yeah, this is really not a this is really not a, a coherent movie. Uh, the other thing is funny that uh, I really like that David Lynch has the cop out where you can go, oh, it's not the movie I would have made uh, because of the because of the cut is different than his cut or whatever. But then he never actually produces his cut. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of like a legendary thing that he talks about a lot. Well, I think he said it would be like six hours if he did it or something, right? Because it's like, and like, I think a lot of it would be like, there's things like Alicia Witt's character, the 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 child, like there's this really cool scene where she brandishes the knife. Like that would be like two minutes long, I'm sure, you know, if, if Lynch had been given the gun. And I say that someone like, I got it. I, I brought up my, my eraser head glossy over here. I love David Lynch dearly, but like he does love those long shots. And like, with all the information that's being conveyed just in plot, like exposition dumps and things along those lines, there just isn't time for any of that. Yeah. I think, you know, you know, we, the whole second half of the first book is like pretty much wedged into the last 45 minutes, you know, charitably. Yeah. And it's sort of like, it's like, Oh crap, we got to finish this up. <laughs> is, is how it feels, you know? And, and I, I say that as someone who does like it. Yeah, that's the one kicker about it is like how many cuts had you just it needed to have like extended uh, exposition, you know, extended lore dumps 
And I think yeah. I remember reading about how like in like some of the in um in some theaters and during the premiere, they were handing out uh, they were handing out like photocopied uh, lexicons, like voc- for oh, the vo- for the film's vocabulary. Uh, hey, Deb, uh, you gotta you gotta hand out reading material to the viewing audience. You know, you got some some dense. Some dense there, there were even some short animations, I think, uh, which were used to explain some of the core concepts. You can find those animations online. Uh, some of the artwork uh, uh, for it is like influential into what our perceptions of June are. Because if you read the novel, it's actually kind of sparse on descriptions, so it leaves a lot. Uh, I guess it leaves a lot to your imagination. So I think our view of um, Dune is very much, even if you read the book, is very much shaped by the cinematography of that movie. Uh, And, you know, for better or for worse, and in general, I actually think the art direction and the cinematography of that movie is really good, even if, as everybody's pointing out, it's it's kind of rushed. The pacing is terrible. And it reminds me in terms of the pacing. Has anyone ever seen that animated Lord of the Rings movie done? In yeah, the, the Bakshi one, right? The Rob Bakshi one? There are two. There was a Rankin Bass and there's a Bakshi. Which one? Oh, uh, the one where they had like real people dressed up as orcs and mixed them Bakshi, yep. Yeah, the, the Bakshi one. That, that's what I was yep. thinking of. Yeah. Yep. I, I had a teacher show that in, uh, in fifth grade instead of teaching a class. Which but is what, 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 why it reminds me is because like you have like pretty good pacing for a bit, and then suddenly it's like let's jam everything into. The- <laughs> we've got a, we've we've got up to like you know page one hundred and twenty of the first book. Let's get the other three jammed in there. And Dune is one novel, but it's a big chunky novel, and yes. really it's kind of two novels, right? The first novel is the story of how the Atreides come to to Dune, uh, the conspiracies taking place in Dune, and then the liquidation of the Atreides at the hands of the Emperor and the Harkonnens. And then there's like a second novel, which is like how Paul Atreides becomes more deep and like how he uh, launches his rebellion in the desert uh, uh, and overthrows both the Harkonnens and the Emperor, setting the scene for the subsequent novel. So it's two hefty novels. Yeah, and that and that second one I guess takes place over the course of 20 minutes and the Yeah, and, <laughs> it, takes, and, it, ends, <laughs> and it ends with like people dry, like giant sandworms and rain and all kinds of like uh stuff which uh which I'm sure we'll go into but kind of like entirely subverts the 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 point of the novel in which you know, Herbert in the novel is trying to warn us about uh, charismatic leaders and messiahs, whereas the movie ends up going like being kind of a classic Hollywood kind of epic movie where it's like, oh, and he turns out to be the messiah rather than the more complicated story that is being told in Dune and then across the subsequent novels. When it comes to Dune adaptations, the miniseries, despite the kind of weak special effects the miniseries from the 2000 does a better job in adapting that story but uh, yeah also far more nudity for, uh, is there more nudity <laughs> in that one it's got it's got, I it's, get got it. it's got professor x in it what's his name mcavoy mcavoy which is funny because patrick stewart is in the uh the, yeah. in the original in yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, real patrick stewart 
It's all, all the Professor X's. It's the law. Gotta have yeah. a Professor X. Gotta have a professor. Is there a Professor X in McAvoy is not in this adaptation of Dean? Unfortunately, I don't know. But maybe it's probably maybe, there. There will be. Uh, there are other as uh, as several uh, Stephen King characters would say. There are other Professor X's than these, and there are probably <laughs> still more Professor X's to come. I'm, uh, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make Andy uh, edit this episode, and then for the rest of wait, and then for the rest for the rest of the show, I'm just gonna start being like, oh, that's not the way I would have cut it. It's a completely different it's a completely different show now. And uh, listen, there's a there's a six hour cut where we just talk about Dune for six hours, and my my cut would have just been a little bit different. So it'd be the De Laurentiis cut of this episode. Sorry, I'm just I'm uh, I'm just looking up the uh, the credit the IMDb entry for. Freddie Francis, who was the cinematography of this film, also worked on Lynch's Straight Story and The Elephant Man. And oh. um, the um, talk about, like I said, it was one of those things that, and I think Jason and Pascal talk about how uh, the from This Is Revolution, a podcast that if that most of you it should probably be subscribed to by now um, in the viewing audience. But it's a thing that would talk about how like the importance of having to of understanding the '80s by living through it. The '80s, especially '80s genre entertainment, was such a very weird, random time that the film that the cinematographer that Freddie the cinematography for the film. Once he left this, uh, do you want to know what the next film he worked on, uncredited, according to IMDb, that came out about what? 1985? Return to Oz with with a very young Farouk Balk and a hell of a lot of nightmare imagery. Yeah, actually, from an imagery and cinematography perspective, great movie. As a movie, nah, maybe not so great, especially not the least of which is much like Dune. All of the Oz books have a rich mythology and lore and actually are very uh, cinematic in their in their writing. Yet only once has there really been a very successful adaptation, which is the, which is the Wizard of Oz that everybody that everybody knows. Always surprising to me. Uh, you know, since I was complaining about my second grade before we started filming in third grade, they actually like before Thanksgiving break, if I remember correctly, we all went into the gymnasium. They pulled down the uh, thing uh, and they sh showed us uh, Return to Oz. On the big screen in the gymnasium. Nightmare fuel. Nightmare yeah, that's, fuel. That's the terrifying one where she's getting uh, shock therapy, right? Yeah, yeah. It starts with, it yeah. Starts with the shock therapy, Let, and it yeah. only gets better from there. But like, it, it kind of <laughs> mashes up the uh, Ozma of Oz book, and uh, I forget the other one. But like, it's got the Gomp, it's got the Gnome King. You get turned into a thing if you guess wrong, like all that stuff. Yeah, shit, I, that was Doctor Merch. Oh, the switch the heads. How can I forget this, the the um the the switching of the heads? That's oh my god, see that as a kid? Good lord. Yeah, I remember I remember the switching of the heads, and I remember um thinking that I was gonna be watching like something like the Wizard of Oz, being really, really young when I watched it, and thinking I was yeah. gonna watch like another Wizard of Oz type movie, and then just watching her get like electroshock therapy and being <laughs> traumatized. <laughs> and now just imagine this a uh, a gymnasium full of children where we had carpeted basketball court <laughs> it could have been worse they could have shown you all like watership down because hey it's it's an animated uh, movie so it must be for kids about bunnies yeah it's great <laughs> so happy story with a cat stevens soundtrack what can you <laughs> that's <laughs> right i forgot about that amazing <laughs> well what can i go wrong? Uh, just just to not that there's a track to get back on but just get us back on track i i do think that from the themes that are presented in the book uh, versus the 1984 movie, whoever it's credited to, uh, I do agree that the whole uh, ecological theme is like largely waylaid 
uh, in what seems like massive cocaine decisions. Massive class solidarity. Decisions. Yeah, massive yeah, exactly. Spice, it's more of a spice yeah, decision. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I think there's a lot of class solidarity there. I think there's some uh, native sovereignty stuff that comes across. And it's something where, th I mean, this was like, whether it made, whether it was like successful movie or not, some kind of daring concepts for quote unquote hard sci-fi as Martin Starr's character and party down would clearly call it. And I think that that's, uh, you know, that's something that I've, I've been thinking about a lot on this, uh, again, a recent rewatch. Cause I've seen it something like you know, seven or eight times. And that includes all the various cuts that are available. Uh, meaning not including the mythological David Lynch, five hour, six hour cut. But I think that the uh, class solidarity indigenous sovereignty stuff, that stuff actually does come through. Now that said, it's all a bunch of white dudes with British accents, right? That's the one thing I was like, do you think like the folks in Arrakis are going to, you know, look like that and, and talk like that? Well, probably not. Aren't they? You know, like I, I believe so, right? They're the Senzuni, the followers of the third Muhammad. And yeah. they come from, they come from Egypt. So like they're supposed to be Arabs. And all, if you, the terminology of course is all derived from Arabic, you know, terms like uh, Naib or, or, uh, Fed, fedakin comes from fedayin you know like or, a lot of the terminology is jihad. Brought, yeah jihad is brought in directly from sort of islamic and, and arabic uh, statecrafts and, and concepts so it is uh it is a bit weird that everybody's a white guy in the future <laughs> although it's never like it's i mean the atreides the atreides brown people are going to die in the future and then <laughs> Yeah. You should get onto that. Oh, oh, I, I should make, I should make a, a point that like all of the, all of the, uh, all of the Fremen from the indigenous of Arrakis, uh, unless I'm wrong, they all have American accents. It's the, it's the Harkonnens and Atreides all have yeah, either right, right. English or Euro accents with the exception of, I don't know, maybe, maybe Kyle MacLachlan has kind of like a, some sort of like borderline transatlantic looking thing, I guess is the, the sole exception. Yeah. But then again, he is kind of both, he is the Atreides who becomes Fremen. So of course he has the uh, kind of like winds up in a full on American accent. Anyway. Yeah. And I guess I was talking more about the Fremen and the fact that like, yeah. you know, these natives of Arrakis all kind of like look like a, a bunch of, Central casting white dudes for a hard sci-fi movie by Dino De Limitas, you know. He speaks in the Twin Peaks dialect, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but then look at Star Wars. Star Wars, all the the Empire all have, have British accents, and you know that was largely due to the fact that like that when they were shooting, that's who was available. But it's also like think of the Empire, think of the Empire, yeah. and the fact that oh, all the Empire has British accents, while the Rebels all have you know more or less American accents, and then are uh, a, a mishmash of different folks and different peoples. Well, the Star Wars universe has some very peculiar accents going on in it at times. There's like, well, oh, I wasn't even thinking about the those prequels. Jeez, yeah, that's... the prequels with the we are the Trade Federation. I mentally <laughs> redact like, those because they're so terrible. The only, the only like uh, they have the a French one as well. The ones with the big sausages on their head. Those ones, you know, those uh, the sausage aliens. They're like, we are the French. We must defend our country. It's like it's really amazing the accents that they. They, they put in Star, Star Wars. But, you know, this is the way that you use accents, isn't it? I mean, like, when you're in a fantasy genre, everybody always, they always hire English actors. But, like, if we're talking about fantasy universe, why would they have English accents more than American accents? It's all to do with the perception of American audiences about what accents uh, should be. 
I think the thing that's more interesting is in this new adaptation the, that's coming out of Dune, uh, there's been so the, the casting looks a lot better. I it like does. they they've they've even changed the character of Leah Kynes, who was played in the original uh, uh, in the '84 movie by a white guy uh, to a black woman, which is which is kind of interest uh, interesting casting choice as well. So you know, I I think. I think one thing that's important, that's kind of good, good. I think for the Dune franchise is that this new one is being deliberately a lot more multi-ethnic in its pre uh, presentation of people, because uh, I think the movie leads us to a kind of perception. I've read. I can't remember when this was. It was an article a couple of years about back about uh, Paul Atreides being a white savior of brown people. Well, that perception doesn't come from the book, because we don't know what we don't know if Paul Atreides is, you know, Mediterranean looking, white looking, you know, uh, what what you know, what have you. Um, it comes from the movie where it's where where it very much does I'm look like, yeah, it looks like a, a colonial uh, a thing, uh, a sort of a colonial story because we have the white savior, but there's no reason why that has to be the case according to the novel, or at least it's in the bloody far future, so it doesn't have to be like that. Certainly there are colonial themes to it. For example, when the book was written, what would have been in the mind of, uh, of, of Frank Herbert when thinking about the Mahdian rebellion would have been the, uh, uh, the Sudanese Mahdi movement mm. and, and things like that. That would have been what would have resonated with him in terms of this being an anti-colonial struggle. So there's no doubt there's an anti-colonial sentiment in it, but like trying to hammer down this white savior narrative is a little bit much, if you ask me. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think there's anything in the in the novel that um, specifically like make, you know, calls out Paul as being like some Anglo dude. That's all like, that's all the Kyle MacLachlan casting. Well, yeah. Lynch just plays Kyle MacLachlan and Kyle MacLachlan's like a great, I actually think Kyle MacLachlan is a great actor. I can't stand Showgirls, and I don't want to get into a conversation about Showgirls. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's ironically good. I think it's a terrible movie. But I think Kyle MacLachlan's decent. You know, he's doing his best to carry that thing on his back. Uh, I think he's he's interesting, too great in everything that that he is to my taste, inclusive of Portlandia, which is very basically a caricature of Kyle MacLachlan as like a liberal mayor, which I think is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, to offer something uh, approaching structured our conversation should we go around and uh, each talk about how we first uh found out you know really got into this film found out about it or saw it the first time or really became a fan of that because i think that's at least a yeah that's that's, that's, that's where i thought we were gonna uh go with this and then we kind of got uh, derailed into a lot of other conversations about it because um, forrest has too much spice melange before he comes on yeah <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I, spice know, melange I'm, decisions <laughs> I'm a, I'm really just a hands off spice kind of a uh, host. Um, With me, I'm rubbing it into my my uh, gums. <laughs> All right, I'm, Colin, you want to start? Believe it or not, I watched the original in the theater with oh, my wow. dad, uh, who took me to see a lot of movies in the theater that I probably shouldn't have, such as uh, RoboCop and uh, <laughs> other incredibly violent things. Uh, I, and I think I was, um, I mean, I guess it must've been like, you know, uh, five, it must've been a repertory theater. Cause I was old enough to remember it. So I, otherwise it would have been like 
like five or six when it came out, but I thought it was awesome. I mean, like you got like, you know, the scene where like he tames the worm and he gets on top of it and the Toto theme, it's like, and it's like, it's like, yeah, like I didn't understand 90% of it. Like I was like, wow, there sure is a lot of talking in this, but every time there was like some cool action thing, Baron Harkonnen terrified me. Like, terrified me i had nightmares about that dude for forever whether it was the pustules whether it was a flying around etc etc all that stuff terror stricken nightmares crying uh and you thought he was gonna, you thought he was gonna hock a loogie on you like he was yeah man like, why would, <laughs> that stuff is nightmare fuel because that and that's where the lynch direction really shines in the fact that like that is just uh such a just like, oh my God, what a horrific, like, you know, sticks in your craw in the dark spaces and the dark corner of the room kind of villain. Uh, but then, you know, the, the whole, like, this is part of the weirding way. We will teach you. Yeah, get them. You know, you, you got to realize that, like, you know, this this is, I was the right age for, for Star Wars. And, like, I thought that was awesome as well. Like, the Ewoks didn't piss me off because I was a kid. I was the, I was the correct age for any of that. Anyway, later on, as I... As I got older, I got into uh, <clears throat> film, the cinema, et cetera, et cetera. And I, one of my favorite directors became David Lynch. I honestly, I like everything he's ever done in some fashion or capacity. While I'm not completely going to go to war for every single one of them. And I think that Dune is one of the weird movies that I will argue any side of it for. I will argue it's fantastic. I will argue it's terrible. I will argue it's mediocre. And... I just think it's a it's a unique experience that even when I'm arguing it's a bad movie, it's like, but it's a watchably bad movie. And I don't have the same affinity for the the book series that uh, some of the excellent folks on the panel do that can speak at length about that. But I've read the first two books as well, well after I saw the movie at least two or three times. We had a video store near my uh, near my apartment that had the uh, the extended cut, you know, complete with the. Do you like voiceover narration? Because boy, there's a lot more of it on this one, uh, kind of. But I actually think that that as a, despite the fact that it's an exposition dump with all of the panache of like a video game tutorial before you start in, press the X button to ride the worm, you know, that kind of thing. It works for me. Like as, as a thing that like that really hadn't been done before. And when you have that much lore to drop into it, I agree. They shouldn't do like, they shouldn't have done like the Star Wars thing of like, we're going to tell you what it is you need to care about. We're going to show you. But I mean, good lord, it's a movie, not like not like a you know eighteen part miniseries for it. So I get it. Um, I've come back around in recent years to. I think it's pretty awesome. Flawed, yes. Awesome, yes. But I went and saw it with my dad, and he thought he was like, he, so he was his his summation, his review of it. That was trippy. Which <laughs> I can't argue with that. And he like he actually is the one who got me a lot of sci-fi, but he had never read Frank Herbert, never read Dune. But uh, my uncle, who is the squarest like dickhead Republican guy ever, he was like, "All right, all right, you should read the book." He got me reading the book, so there you go. That's my entry into Dune. I mean, I think it's interesting that there's these two crossover things, which are there's a lot of people that are really into David Lynch, like insanely into David Lynch, and I think there's a lot of people that are really into Dune as a book series. So it's interesting to have kind of this crossover uh, that exists with those two. Groups who maybe, I mean, like maybe not, uh, you know, maybe th that kind of like film nerd that's like really, really, really into watching David Lynch movies and the people that are really into Dune aren't necessarily going to fully cross over on a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's less, I think, for those people about 
for the for the very Lynchian cinema nerds, less about the the sci-fi elements of it and more about like you know the the way that David Lynch uh, creates film is different than really any other director. A hundred percent. And I think like, so just in the way that the miniseries is like closer to the source material, but like maybe for me, ultimately like less entertaining as something to watch. And that same way, the, uh, the, the shining that has the dude from wings in it instead of Jack Nicholson. Uh, yeah, that's closer to the book, which I love, but I don't like watching it as much. Although I do like watching Rebecca DeMornay. Yeah. But the shining is just a good fucking movie by, by any, like, by any metric, that's like one of the, I think one of the, the greatest like horror movies that any, anyone's ever made. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Kubrick is our Abby for this uh, on YouTube for this channel. But oh, real uh, quick, Kubrick didn't, gang gang. Uh, didn't the uh, didn't the uh, 97 miniseries with was it Tim? Was it Tim Daly or Steven Weber? I can't remember whichever the which wings dude uh, played Jack oh. Torrance. But wasn't that version the one that actually they, they decided to go with? Because Stephen King had far more input in it, they decided to put the actual like animal topiaries back in. And from yes. all reports, they, the 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 effects from ninety six ninety seven made it look like you had like PlayStation One rendered characters <laughs> in your film. Yeah, you thought you were playing Crazy Taxi or something. Yeah, and it's Stephen Weber, by the way. It's not um not the guy that was in uh, um, Sideways and uh, all all that. <laughs> uh, Thomas okay, Andrews. It wasn't Thomas serious. Andrews. There we go. Uh, all right. So Gene, like in terms of the book series, like I've always kind of, for a long time, I've known about Dune, you know, as someone who likes sci-fi, uh, but I did see the movie before I read the books. I remember seeing the books. I remember seeing the books at my friend, Matthew Dore's house, his parent, his, his dad, who was, a uh, who was a medical doctor. He, he really liked that book series. And I remember seeing those books there and asking about them. And then I don't know exactly when I saw the uh, Dune uh, movie the first time, but I have seen it a lot of times. And the reason I've seen it a lot of times is I think I saw it on, may have seen it on TV, but I, I must've liked it because I bought the DVD and I've watched that DVD like so many, it was like the only DVD, uh, that DVD I took to Iraq when I went, I took it to Turkey, you know, I was like, it, it, that DVD has been everywhere with me. So I've seen this movie like loads of times, so many times that I just cannot tell you when the first time I saw it was. When it comes to the book, uh, I read the I read the book relatively recently uh, because you know there's a lot of things that have been on my to read list, uh, but you know I just hadn't had time with like doing all my like studying and and you know getting my PhD. I could never read a novel because it was always like oh I need to. I need to read something appropriate for my studies. I can't have time to to read a big, thick novel. So I think maybe like six, seven years ago, I finally sat down and I, I got through Dune uh, and you know read, I think, the first four books. And my wife, she's read all of, she's read them all. Uh, and yeah, I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I actually think you know the first one is a really is a really good book, but is not written in the best way that the most accessible way i actually think the later novels are, are like easier to read but they have different themes and different meanings to them so i'd like uh, and uh, i would note in the time between seeing the lynch movie and the uh, reading the books i'd also seen the miniseries so 
uh yeah i'm like kind of i'm kind of into dune i think it's pretty good I'm, I'm gonna try and read the rest of the books when i have my chance i have my dune roleplay book here yeah yeah, yeah i've got my dune <laughs> roleplay book but yeah i think it's a it's a fascinating like novel there's a lot of ideas in there which today some of the ideas might seem cliched but at the time they were written they were kind of original ideas and dune has been extremely influential if you know about the warhammer 40,000 universe you will understand the sources of the warhammer 40,000 universe are dune the foundation series and all that weird shit in Mooncrock and um uh uh hp lovecraft and you know that that's 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 a whole other thing but if you read the original rule book to the warhammer 40,000 universe which is now like a multimedia empire it's basically the guys had clearly just read dune and the foundation and then just like let's let's uh let's frankenstein those things in together and see what we can make out of it so you know i really like dune i like the lynch movie for what it is I think it's really badly paced and since reading the novels i'm like it also completely misses the point of herbert's uh messages and book uh, uh about it but you know it is what it is and i think it's a beautiful movie i think the, the costume design is wonderful uh you know the acting is solid it's just a movie that suffered from having to be a single movie instead of being broken up into the two constituent parts of the book which are this first part, which is, you know, the 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 struggle over Arrakis between the Atreides and the Harkonnens and the Emperor. And then the second part, which is this kind of like how uh, Paul Atreides comes to be seen as a messiah, when in fact, you know, all the religious foundation upon which his, uh, his uh, uh, you know, divinity, semi-divinity is based, is actually a complete fabrication which is something that the movie completely misses yeah that's cutting room floor we'll, we'll charitably say <laughs> yeah um it's i think it's really interesting that you read the books uh while taking a break from studying because you know it kind of a lot of this feels like lore and history like it kind of feels like it falls into the same thing i mean obviously it's a fictionalized uh like fantasy history but it's still in the same way like there are dates there like are so many names to remember like it feels like um, in, in a very similar way, it's kind of, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a it's a series of like almost historical books, just like I feel like Lord of the Rings, um, you know, you read Lord of the Rings and having to keep track of everything feels like you're studying history. I don't like Lord of the Rings that much, to be honest. Like, I like the movie, but I don't really like the books. I find them very stodgy and hard to get through. Now, uh, you know, I think they benefit from, they were like the own, one of the very few things of its type when it was written you know like having fantasy worlds with like advanced mythos is, is a relatively like 20th century thing there were a couple of predecessors but you know it was lord of the rings was one of the uh you know first books to really lean into that one of the first book series to lean into that but i don't think lord of the rings is that good whereas i do think dune is a really good book and i think you know the the dune uh like the dune novels i like really you know like the some of them are really like underrated you know i like the the second novel yeah i like the second novel a lot gene how, how do you feel about 
the like Song of Ice and Fire and His Dark Materials and other more like recent. So I, I don't I, I haven't I haven't read uh, the what's his name the His Dark Materials. I know about it. I haven't even I know there's some TV adaptations. In fact, are they aren't they doing a TV show right now? Yeah. Uh, there, there was a first season of it, I think. Right, just just finished. Yeah. Pretty good. It was, it was good. I like it. I, I haven't read the book, so and I haven't seen the TV series of it, so I don't know anything about that. With Song of Ice and Fire, um, I saw my brother had read it, so he had the novels, and then I saw the first episode of Games of Thrones, and I was like, "Oh, this is pretty good." And again, I was like trying to avoid doing some work, and I was like, "I just got the uh, I got the novel, and I read it, and then I just read all the novels after that, like yeah. uh, by the end of it." I think the Song of Ice and Fire is also it's it's a good novel um it it's you know there's a more modern writing style to it which i think yeah. uh, makes the the story like easier to digest like uh what's his name um george R. R. martin he breaks a lot of like typical writing conventions but by and large the way that he like for example he has people with very similar names so you mix them up all the time which is like bad writing but like <laughs> it works within his context uh i do think it suffers a little bit as you get down the novels like i've kind of lost interest i was like uh, waiting for the new one, but now I'm like, do I even care anymore? Um, <laughs> because, you know, at, at a certain point... The, those last two seasons of the show were complete cocaine decisions. Uh, cocaine, like, yeah. Like, I mean, like, the last two well. seasons were, were not very good of the, of the show. Once they ran out of source material, that show is just useless. But, you know, but, yeah, I think I think uh, George R. R. Martin suffers a little bit from the kind of the Byzantine nature of the story that he's telling. Because remember, like this, uh, one of the differences between that kind of epic cycle in The Song of Ice and Fire and Dune is that Dune takes place over an extended period of time. Like the, yeah. like the first three novels uh, are like roughly within the same historical era. And then you're like, you're in God Emperor of Dune, where it's like a thousand years or something. Centuries, thousands of years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like and then you get thing, into yeah. the whole. Then you get into the whole latter end of the series where you have like the, the like things change. There's the honored Matres turn up. There's the great enemy. There's like a whole load of things going on. So he keeps it kind of fresh because I think the problem with Song of Ice and Fire is like we don't get like what I find works really well is. Uh, you can have like an ongoing series, uh, but it's best to like have trilogy cycles within that series. And one series that does that really well is the Expanse series of books because that that gives you like three trilogies. Well, we're in like we're in the third trilogy and they're heading to the last book, right? But like the three trilogies happen at different moments. And then they also like have a meaningful cycle that kind of gives you some kind of right resolution where you can check out. You can be like, okay, I'm done. I'm checking out. Whereas uh song of ice and fire, it's just like, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's just, you never really getting kind of satisfying feeling that anything ever comes to the conclusion with June. The first book is kind of self-contained. Uh, the second book is kind of like a tragic personal story. And the third, uh, the third book, uh, you know, like kind of takes you to the end of that, and then you go to God Emperor, where it gets all weird yeah. and stuff like that. And there's like lesbian warriors. Book of the series, it's crazy. But um, but you feel like you kind of like you can check out after the first Dune book. 
without feeling like you're missing something, right? Whereas Song of Ice and Fire is just leading you down the garden path. So I think it's good writing in certain ways, but it's also very like uh, cumbersome. And you know, if you if you're not giving me a new novel within a relatively short space of time, I'm going to not give a shit after a while. <laughs> yeah, you we're know, busy lives here. <laughs> whereas if someone said to me like, uh, you know, Frank Herbert, not his son. Uh, but if Frank Herbert was coming back to give me a new Dune novel, I'd be like, cool, I'm looking forward to that. I'll read that because, you know, you can read it in a self-contained way. And, and I think, uh, first of all, I think uh, it was a Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank should have you on the payroll because when I finally get back into trying again with The Expanse, it's literally going to be because of you, dude. Like, because you're, you're unabashed and very intelligent uh, discussions of, of the world of The Expanse. Like it, it's like, all right, man, I'm going to give that another try. So, well, I'm looking forward to those credit. guys doing their new, uh, they're, they're, they're like, they're signing out of the expanse universe, which I respect. Uh, yeah. You know, I respect that move. Cause it's like, they're, they're going to have done nine novels. The last novel seems to be heading towards like a good conclusion point for the yeah. whole series. And then they're going to check out and then they want to do something a bit more like Dune. So, whereas like the expanse is in the near future where everything is kind of just, and I have a whole theory about like the expanse is actually like a defense of liberalism as well, but we won't go into that because we're not talking about <laughs> that. That'll be for a sequel. And, and also I keep interrupting to your, this, I think introduction slash first question for us is trying to do. So sorry. <laughs> yeah. But I would say, I would say I'm looking forward to their attempt to do something on the scale of Dune, which should be quite exciting. Um, another, another interesting inspiration. Did you want to ask the rest of us the question? Yeah, but wait, I wanted to, <laughs> wanted to put this thought. To, another interesting bad, that I think, uh, that I think that Andy would appreciate, um, another interesting, I guess, person who I feel like got inspired by Dune. I don't know whether he got inspired by the movie or the, or the novels, but, um, Garth Innes's preacher. It feels oh, hell like, yeah. like, it feels like they took the idea, he took the idea of Genesis from, from the voice. And it, it feels like there's. Like very similar themes there, I think. Um, I mean, if you, if you mix like Dune plus like you know Good, Bad, and the Ugly, like slash uh, Saint of Killers, and like you know a few other things together, you have Preacher, which in one or two ways has not aged well, and the rest of the time it has aged fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Andy, so how did you first watch this? And uh, I don't know. I mean, you kind of showed us at the beginning, but I don't remember if it was on camera or not. I think it was before. Yeah, I, I think it was before we started recording. Yeah. Uh, but anyways. <laughs> I, I was uh, I was seven in second grade. My my mom recently sent me um, all, all these old uh, class pictures of uh, me, and um, you know you can see my my, <laughs> my class. So so I just uh, I pulled that out for you guys. But anyways, um, I was in second grade. I remember uh, I uh, saw the commercials on TV and thought that was the coolest thing ever. Um, I was so excited to see the movie. I even made up a song. I don't remember the song, but I remember driving everybody crazy, singing my stupid Dune song. Um, and and uh, um, nobody in my second grade class even heard of this movie. And, and it was driving me crazy because like, like the two movies that came out that year that really stuck with me was Dune and Ice Pirates. Oh, yeah. Ice Pirates, holy crap. Awesome. <laughs> my my, my uh, science project was to build the robot that got its head chopped off. That, uh, um, what's his the name? Oh, Bruce, Bruce Valanche got, got his head then put onto after he got decapitated. Yeah, 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 as one does. <laughs> yeah, but... Um, and Forrest, this is the second stream I brought up Ice Pirates with you. <laughs> for, for those of you, those of you youngins... 
<laughs> if you weren't a Gen X kid growing up with like HBO and never saw Ice Pirates um, in the theater or anything, yeah, uh, go find the Red Letter Media review, overview, appreciation of what was Ice Pirates. It's, uh, it is a thing of, not necessarily a thing of beauty, but certainly a thing of interest. Yeah, no, yeah. Ice Pirates is a messy movie, but like, like those were my two big second grade movies. Uh, and and um, uh, so, so that was, I, I had the action figures. I remember they had the, um, the, the, you like pushed a button on the side and they would like stab each other, like awkwardly. <laughs> I had Sting and Paul. 1984. Yep. Um, I had the picture book. Uh, you know, I had the, I had the comic book adaptation. Yeah. I, I was like, you know, hardcore fanboy for that shit. And uh, uh, th then, uh, uh, you know, I kind of grew up and grew to really appreciate that. That comic book is amazing. If y'all haven't checked that out, Bill Sienkiewicz did the artwork for it. And for uh, folks that are come from a more popular standpoint, Bill did the, the iconic artist of the New Mutants, which is I just recently reread. Re and it's, I mean, amazing, unfuckable, right? Like, great. Yeah. yeah and, and of course, uh, you know, he, he kind of made Moon Knight, uh, Moon Knight, like, Yep. Anybody talking about Moon Knight is always talking about the Bill Sienkiewicz series where he yep. literally started off deconstructing the artwork of um, Neil Adams and then going abstract as the series, you know, as the main character loses his sanity. So, you know, um, just just an amazing artist. So so his Dune adaptation, which um, is, is absolutely incredible. And the, the, the way the colors like he allowed the colorist to really go in there yeah. and, and make these almost like abstract paintings for some of these splash pages with, with the, uh, you know, with the use of colors and it works so well on the newsprint. And that's, that's what it can, tends to get lost. Like if they reprinted it today, they put it on glossy paper and you're not going to see that, that beautiful nuance of the, uh, uh, of the colors or they recolor it. And it looks <laughs> like um, yeah, it, it but, wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't hit the same, like in the same way that like they, they recently did a thing with some of the more, I think it was the, um, the more recent uh, X-Men stuff, like the uh, Krakoa, uh, I'm blanking on the the guy who, who made that world, but, but but basically made the X Men like interesting again for the first time since like Grant Morrison probably. And they, uh, no 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 that that's old that's old school. This this is this is more recent. I'll, I'm gonna think of it oh, like yeah. the second I'm done talking. I'm sure, but oh, they did right. a uh, version because it's all the computer colors. Computer color is computer like the the new style, right? They did a run of these that like I don't know if it's limited or what. I'm not you know the be all end all of it, but it's like in the older newsprint style. And it's like, and the, the, it's such, cause the art is so cool. Like, and, and the, um, I'm blanking on the artist's name as well. So I'm doing a fantastic job, but the, uh, the art is like so iconic with this and like so cool that like, it's something where it actually would, would be like, wow, why don't you just do that all the time? Like, why don't you been grand design? Um, that's Pisker. So I, I'm thinking of, uh, it's like rain of X and, uh, uh, okay. Dawn of X and all that. Yeah, uh, oh, that, all the new stuff that's all. coming out. It's good. It's yeah. actually good. Way past my time. Way past my era. Yeah, I, I had I had given up. Oh, Hickman, Jonathan Hickman. Fuck me. Why was that so hard? Uh, <laughs> Jonathan Hickman is the is the is the writer for it, and uh, but it's it's very intrinsically uh, tied in with the art as well. And they did a run of it that was just like that old style, like you know, old, like you know, uh, that style comic book um, printing. And it, and it's like, just do this. This is great. It's yeah, cooler. You know, it's it better than what you're normally doing. 
I, I think I think it's it's all valid depending on what you're doing. You know what I mean? But if like like for this, this one it's better with the the newsprint. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and and I think too it depends on the story is, is what I'm trying to say. Like like yeah. You know, oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah like, like you know just because it's right for the story doesn't mean it's going to be right for every story. Yeah, you, you know because Spawn looked amazing with those colors in 1993 whenever that came out. Sure. Um and, and yeah, Russia did a whole bunch of crappy stuff to uh, to imitate it, but you know um. It, it, but but it was able to use this new you know that that new computer technology to to its fullest. Uh, and, and, yeah, that's uh, a great example of it. And that's a, so so. And certain things work better with that style, just like yes. certain things work better with the newsprint style. Yeah, and, 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 and yeah, this Dune ahead. adaptation works so beautifully with that newsprint right. style, <laughs> uh, which which is great. And, and I do always want to uh, you know bring that up just because like like if they do try to reprint it, it's not going to work. It, and know, I was actually trying to one up your point, not take us off topic. So my bad on that. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I stood us back beautifully. Transition us back to uh, like film and and to Dune in general. Um, I, I think that the filmmaking style of this one is extremely eighties. Like I don't think anybody possibly could make films like that. That like weird kind of like humorous, like campy, but also uh, like serious. Like the plot is engrossing enough that you take it seriously but at the same time like the the costume design and the set design is just so overly campy like especially for uh, for um the duke like the floating duke like I, it's just yeah. i i don't think that you could do that today though and have that be a, a movie that anybody takes seriously they'd just be like you know they'd take it as some kind of comedy and i don't i think in the 80s they were able to to create these like incredibly campy uh villains and characters that we wouldn't be able to create at all today Similarly to uh, Max von Sydow, who also is a you know who played the planetologist in this film, playing Ming the Merciless just a few years earlier in the actually I think this was also a Dino De Laurentiis production of Flash Gordon, which also had of course the uh, the opera you know operatic rock score by a uh, a pop rock band. It also had uh, it also had Brian Blessed in it. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> Hawkman. That's true. You know, uh, and he, uh, Brian Blessed, I think, even though he has not passed away, he has been reincarnated as Matt Berry. Oh yes, yeah. <laughs> Matt, yeah. Matt Berry, I love that. Yeah. Who is, uh, of course, in? He's in a he lot of stuff. Shadows. But yeah, he's like you guys probably all know him from the Shadows show. But he, he was also in the IT crowd. Was that popular in America? Wait. Oh yeah, IT, well, IT, IT crowd is one of my my favorites. Yeah, I, I love him in that. I think he's I the only possible person they could have replaced. I once broke up with a girl over uh, a, a very serious disagreement between which was better, Big Bang Theory or IT crowd. And I was like, IT crowd is like way better. And she was like, Nope, it's uh, it, it's Big Bang Theory. And I was like, What are you talking about? And well, well, Big Bang Theory sucks. To be fair, Big Bang Theory sucks big time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Big Although Bang Theory is a show about smart people. It's the, yeah, the, the, it, the, it, the show Bang about smart people uh, written by smart people who are writing about in a way that dumb people think smart people are. Yeah, right. No, it's, it's, it, it's well, as it's in Philadelphia, is uh, like a show about dumb people that is for smart people. I would say. Yeah, I, I was at a con once, and and this uh, guy I know stops me and just like, "Have you ever seen the show Big Bang Theory?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I've seen a few episodes. I, I couldn't get into it." It's like, man, I wish you were on this panel. I was just on. Whoever booked the panel had a guy who thought we were talking about the Big Bang Theory. 
So the entire time we're talking about the TV show, he's trying to loop it back to science. <laughs> Maybe See, he the, the problem with Big Bang Theory, I think, is... Maybe he fucking loves science. <laughs> um, the, the problem with Big Bang Theory, I think, is that it is a mainstream sitcom written about people who would be into incredibly niche uh, culture. And so, like, all the references are for a mainstream audience when... Like, none of the dialogue would be like that. It would be people like referencing incredibly niche things that nobody else is into because that's who the characters are at their core. And so it's like a, it's like a weird, it's like a, um, I mean, I hate sitcoms in general. Like, I think the sitcom style is, is overly, like, like, you know what I mean? There's just yeah. been too many of them and they're all written the same way and they all have like way too many people having input on the jokes. But it feels like since Big, Big Bang Theory was like the most popular sitcom for it, like for its time, you know, up to like, what, like two years ago or something like it's written for people that had no idea about anything to do with sci-fi or about anything to do with like a niche culture or anything like nerd culture. And it's written as if it's supposed to be for them, but like none of the characters would be referencing the things they're referencing. Yeah. Um, I think the bit I remember at, the, at its height, I remember best, the show best being described as um, cause it was on CVS. So someone described it as, as, as like effectively it's like people, uh, these are what, this is Chuck Lorre writing a show for your parents, for what your parents think you and all your friends <laughs> sound like, or it's like, you know, because like, or at least what, uh, for their parents to, to get an understanding, you know, at least some sort of vague understanding of what, what their kids are like. I, uh, I will say this, uh, it crowd, um, was a far better show. Uh, it was probably well. I mean, it was probably, and it's it's a little bit soured in in since then. It's probably also like far less. What should say? Um, Big Bang Theory is probably a, probably far less transphobic, but I think that's mainly on due to the uh, IT crowd showrunner. The other kicker is that, but I think most Americans first, well, most geeky Americans probably first saw Matt Berry when Garth Marenghi's Dark Place got really really popular over here. Uh, thanks to BitTorrent taking off during the aughts. I know definitely that is when uh, a bu- that is when uh, me and my friends and a bunch of uh, other like online uh, American idiots saw it. Can we Can also I- talk about Toast of London and the fact that anyone that does audio editing uh, like has to appreciate like all the voiceover scenes? Oh, like- the the one on the nuclear submarine is amazing. Periscope, yeah. <laughs> Periscope up. <laughs> Let's go down. Clem Fandango. I mean, get out of here. It's, it's All right. So we're still. So we're still on this first question. So I think, yeah, uh, yeah, I think yeah, transitioning, yeah. transitioning into uh, in, into Jeremy. Um, so when did you first uh, encounter Dune? Oh, and last thing we mentioned, Brian Blessed. Uh, turns out, uh, judging if his IMDb is it is it all in uh, accurate, Kenneth Kenneth McMillan, who plays the Duke. Um. Although I think if I whenever he says that you're the Duke, I keep wanting to talk like Donald Pleasance in uh, in uh, in Escape from New York. But See, this uh, is this is what the actual uh, dialogue from the Big Bang Theory would sound like. <laughs> there, there is there well there except that there's no way in hell that the name Donald Pleasance would ever show up on a CBS sitcom. No, I'm saying like I'm saying like a more like a more accurate version. Oh, that's of, true. Yeah, of like yeah. yeah. No. Just bring in Kelly Cacao and we're good. Yeah, there we go. The, um, but also, but uh, but uh, Kenneth McMillan, uh, according to his IMD, actually was an American born and raised in Brooklyn, and was just good enough and trained well enough so he could pull off the accent and the um, 
the dramatic style because which is shocking to me because I, th- I thought the guy was like english or welsh or something because if yeah. uh just like how how expansive it is my background with the film is that my father who uh, was an english teacher at a local public high school also had a side class an advanced placement class that only um an elective on science fiction where like the kids you know he'd have the kids read uh science fiction novels or stories or whatever throughout the year and then uh after they read a novel they'd watch the film adaptation so he first uh he would rent the film very early on and we'd watch it and like i don't know like what it came out it's the film was in these this would have been like v uh on uh, from like 85 on um and yeah just watching it then it was kind of thing was like you know first watching and this is very much again and this is in you know star wars mid 80s era so i just thought it was like this great operatic sci-fi thing with um you know a bunch of, like you know much cool visuals and cool tech and oh look and there's dean stockwell for some reason and yeah. um and so it's one of the things that definitely came in and it was definitely it was imprinted into my brain like long before any sort of critical faculties to, could take home could take hold rather and so i remember like in like year it didn't read the book until after undergrad because i remember reading it until um in yeah it was definitely when i was in ann arbor the um and then like i was or we'd always read people talk about how like, oh lynch was so disappointed by this and it's such a weird odd film and i'm like what what is everybody talking about this is just this makes perfect sense to me um and then i think i'm trying to remember i can't remember when i actually sh- uh when if i have i think i did show it to my uh my uh, my partner who was kind of interested into it into it but um i don't know if it necessarily took hold maybe it will require like some of the book reading too but one of the i will say this one of the benefits of these i think in the mid 90s once you got like the sci-fi channel and all the other like basic cable channels airing some of the extended cuts is when you got like the all the other like background information that was cut from the theatrical version like just getting the concept of the but the butlerian jihad out there for a lot of people was um is especially now such a critical concept of like yeah hey humanity uh <laughs> humanity's auto you know their their computation technology was way too bad and horrible and they rebelled and destroyed all of it it was kind of a thing with actually uh you know kind of uh it it it, uh, it rings attractively in our modern lives somehow so i was always you know big fan of the, big fan of the film i remember I did never actually had the never actually had the action figures, but I remember. Uh, God, again, I was, you know, I was a kid in the mid in the mid eighties. I remember at our at the at our first regular video store, they had a cardboard mobile. Uh, advertising the VHS that was out. It was like a big, like folding ship, and a couple other ships underneath it, and a couple little like rent due now um there so it's um yeah and it's it's one of those, yeah one of those weird things um of just the, you know you just early early uh formational pop uh pop things that you see when you're a kid and it's not till like just you know decades later that you realize oh everybody in this was either in elephant man twin peaks logan's run um and a bunch of other like a thousand and one other things so anyway, but yeah. Um, so that kind of does that kind of nicely, I guess, dovetails into my next question for everyone. Um, now that everyone's kind of run through their first experiences with it. And I, I think 
I, I'm wondering how you think the movie interacts with whether it like benefits from or suffers uh, from like the pop culture at the time, because it clearly is a movie of the 80s. Like the, the, the music that they're playing as he's on top of the sandworm is obviously like, you know, it's like, cool. like, yeah, it's rock, cool. like, oh, no. it's, yeah. Ro yeah, Robert Criscow called them Grammy rock. You know, yeah. well, it's Toto, and, but it's and, good. It's like maybe the best thing Toto ever did. And and it's uh, I mean, you know, like obviously, like Sting is but in they it. Didn't, like, it's it's they interacting, didn't. it's interacting with pop culture in in a strange way that you don't necessarily. Uh, that kind of, I mean, in some ways takes you out of the story, and I think some ways benefits it. So I'm wondering um, how you guys feel about that. One of the one of the interaction points with pop culture, not just at the time, but also earlier, it helps to um, when you realize and if you've seen uh, Wild at Heart, you definitely get this, too. But if you when you watch it and realize that David Lynch's favorite film is Wizard of Oz, so many of the yeah. visuals, especially on the Harkonnen planet, like especially with uh, Jack Nance's character, who's got this weird, very oddly, you know, um, Ozian, I can't remember what you, who, you know, uh, Ozian, uh, like look to him and it's like, yeah, this is, you watch it and you realize, okay, yeah, there's, there's a shit ton of Wizard of Oz in that right there. As for the rest of the, the pop culture, it's interesting to see everything from, uh, you have, what did you talk about? Yeah. Everything from, uh, what the lead singer from the police interacting with Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, in the same, in a, I believe they're in a couple of the same scenes, but because yeah. of uh, Jose Ferrer. Well, now that you've mentioned the, the well, now we've mentioned Sting and talked about how he's the, uh, I mean, the lead singer of the police. I had to play the uh, Patrick Stewart um, talking about uh, meeting Sting, which is an honestly amazing clip that I'm really happy that I saw because the way he says tacos is fantastic in this. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, what was it like working with like co-star uh, Sting on Dune? Um. <laughs> It was fabulous. Uh, um, some great, great actors in that movie, uh, some of whom have, have left us, and that's incredibly sad. Ken McMillan, in particular, who was a wonderful guy. I got to go out to dinner once a week with Max von Sydow, who was one of my heroes. Oh. And I used to oh. sit across the table from him, and, and you know, we would eat tacos, and I Kyle um, uh, uh, McLaughlin has become a lifelong friend and buddy, as has Everett McGill, who was also in that movie. The three of us hung out together a lot. No, about Sting. I know. Sting. I'm coming to Sting. So, music, at least popular music, has never played a big part in my life until the last few years for a very good reason. I didn't. I had never heard of Sting. <laughs> I mean, that's how isolated I was from the music world. But I was aware that there was, because I'd been there a couple of weeks before Sting arrived, and when he arrived, <gasps> there was this kind of frisson everywhere. You know, the whole of Mexico City was a buzz that Sting was coming. And um, so I heard he was a musician. That's all I knew. And the... And so the second or third day, we're just hanging out on the set, and him and me, and I say, so you're a musician? And he said, yep. And I said, what do you play? <laughs> and I swear, I swear, I crossed my heart. Oh, no. <laughs> and, 
And he said, bass. And I said, you know, I've often wondered, what is it like carrying that huge thing around <laughs> it everywhere you go? And, <laughs> All right. I mean, God bless him. Sting said, um, uh, no, bass guitar. That's what I play. And I said, oh, ah, oh, great. That's fantastic. Beautiful instrument. And you're like, are you a solo artist? And he said, no, 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 I'm in a band. And I said, oh, what kind of band? He said, the police. <laughs> Folks. <laughs> I said, you play in a police band. Oh. <laughs> oh. So good. <laughs> I down the notch. <laughs> Amazing. Love it so much. And, and and there's even some police. I think it's a couple videos where he actually does play an upright bass as well, which, but yeah. But I just, yeah, like, I just like the thought of like getting a call from, you know, Sir Patrick Stewart and he's like, hello, would you like to get tacos with me? That's how we Patrick Stewart. Would you like to get some tacos? Yeah. Tacos. But he said he said like he said tacos. tacos. Would you care for a taco, sir? We have wonderful <laughs> tacos. Tacos were a delicacy in Britain in the <laughs> 1980s. They were a fine. I was doing King Lear. <laughs> we had some tacos. I had never had a taco. If you until want to I was taken to Mexico City with my good friends. And Sting, Sting and I are great friends now. <laughs> I like, I, I would, uh, what's the name? Uh, Patrick Stewart is, uh, he's from Yorkshire originally. So he's like from my neck of the woods. He's not a southerner, but he comes out of this, like, you know, in America, like people just ride in from Kansas and like hang around LA and become actors. Whereas in Britain, they actually go to like schools and things like that. <laughs> By the way, I just want to, I just want to remark Forrest, um, you look so fresh faced these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You really I don't, don't know. Being, being, told that, uh, being told that my mustache made me look like a, a sex offender, kind of. Sex criminal. You know, sex criminal. Sex criminal. You but didn't, didn't your mother agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, no, she did. I said, I said, I said, she said, how did it go last night? Cause I'm living back here at my mom's. And she's like, how did it go last night with the podcast? And I was like, oh, it was good, but I was kind of getting roasted. And you know, Jean said my, uh, my, my mustache maybe looked like a sex criminal. And she was like, well, yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> I, I would, that's bad. That's bad. <laughs> yeah. That's why you, you can't just have a mustache. It's gotta be mustache and something else. Cause uh, yeah. Or you can have a mustache and like a Hawaiian shirt. You just go for the full look. Like, well, uh, it, no, no, it's it's white people and mustaches. If I grew a mustache, I would just look like every other Middle Eastern immigrant. You know? <laughs> <laughs> can I? I don't think I'm getting another chance to do it. So can I just break in? Uh, not with the sting part, but with the score. The score mm -hmm. by Toto. No? Yeah. Characterized yeah. as Grammy Rock by Robert Criscow, who I'm not even a huge Robert Criscow fan, but I think that's hilarious. The rain down and, in Arrakis. No. <laughs> I do think that <laughs> right exactly missed the opportunity boys uh, I, I, I do think they were an excellent choice for the soundtrack to it and like I said like an iconic moment for me watching this as a child was that Kyle McLaughlin finally rides a sandworm and you get like the big Toto score that's pretty badass I don't even like Toto but that's still pretty badass yeah, the big, but the, apparently the score. 
<laughs> right, exactly. Apparently, the, o- the only direction from David Lynch is, I want it to be low and slow and no harps. <laughs> that's, the, that's the direction, which I think is... Apparently, David Lynch hates harps, which I think is hilarious. That's just a, a little tidbit that I, I enjoyed. He looks like someone that would play a harp. It looks like a dude that would have like a movie about a harp player, right? But no, he doesn't. Not like even harps. a movie. It looks like David David Lynch looks like someone who would have a harp on hand. Right. It's in his back pocket. <laughs> Low and slow, I, I, and no harps. I, I felt a lot of the uh, the score though was was fairly monotonous. Uh, I, I don't know if that's yeah, just well, me. Low and slow, right? So there you go. Uh, I think mean, Brian I know, did the, the other same, part of it. The same, like you know, a couple of notes over and over again. I don't know, like, like the, uh, the, you know, yeah, the, the, the worm writing was great. Like, don't get me wrong. That part was great. Yeah. Uh, you know, truly the high point of the, the score. But like, you know, except for like the uh, Eno bits, which were also great, um, uh, which we should mention that that Eno did the uh, uh, the music whenever he, he was tripping balls. Um <laughs> <laughs> which, which if you're gonna get somebody to do your music but, when you, uh, ball, you can do way worse than Brian Eno, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Was, that was fantastic. I don't know. I just felt like like the whole like opening credit, the bow, 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 like like yeah. just over and over again for like you know two hours. It, it was a little See, little much. I, it, it, it's I soundtrack rock. <laughs> I didn't really yeah. mind the, the repetitiveness of it. I kind of I think my brain registers repetitiveness in a weird way though. I like Feel almost like comforted by the same music being played in like different scenes when I watch a movie. But I, I, I think that when he rides the sandworm and you can really just hear the score go up like that, I think uh, I really started to feel that it like I started to feel the time period this movie was made more than at any yeah. other point really. Um, which I'm not Hell saying yeah, ride bad. the sandworm, let's go, baby. Yeah, not, you know, not, not just that, but also the, the quieter moments. Yeah, the um, they're definitely like the quieter again, most the trippy. And like the like the love scene segments where it's all mostly synth, and it was like you know a little plinky synth that I remember watching again, realizing that just the amount of you can well you can definitely tell it was made and or written within a uh, the score was written within a couple of years of Blade Runner because there's a lot of very um, very sim similar vibe with just how like you know I mean not just like not just a synth score on a major sci-fi flick but it is um, yeah quiet and underplated and just kind of very but like background plinky if you will. Can I jump in real quick and say that I'm actually excited that uh, since you mentioned Blade Runner, the uh, Villanueva, who's uh, made the sequel to Blade Runner that nobody exactly asked for, but actually ended up being pretty cool. By my great, yeah. I like all of those dude that every movie that dude has done. I love. I think it's re- the really cool, understated, underappreciated. So I think if anybody can pull it off, uh, he can. But yeah, he's the one that's making this new Dune with the guy, the guy that like, so the guy that's in the Moadib role, I've seen two movies with him and I liked both of them and I don't remember anything about him in it, which is usually Lady a bad Bird, right? Lady Bird, I loved. That was one of my favorite movies of that year. And I uh, was in, uh, what was the other one? I think it's like, I liked Lady Bird. Uh, I mean, he obviously is kind of an asshole in Lady Bird. He's like, yeah. He's like just that kid that's like clearly like not ready for any kind of relationship and wants to keep fucking around while she's like Catholic girl taking it super seriously. So I don't know. Yeah. He kind of he was like he was like just a, a, a small a small weasel in that movie. And I think that's the only movie. I mean, for a while everyone was talking about Timothy Chalamet like 
all over the place. And then I finally saw Lady Bird. He's pretty, I guess. Yeah. Like every, I, I, I guess that's why people like him. I don't know. Like he was in Inter- Interstellar apparently too, which is a film I totally saw and ostensibly enjoyed, but I don't remember anything about it. So like this guy's giving me Mo Deeb. All right. Surprise me. He's in, he's in, he's in that. Oh, well, well. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like he was in that film. I do remember. I do like how they, uh, for Lady Jessica, they cast Rebecca Ferguson. And uh, for those of you who have just seen uh, Dr. Sleep, she is the um, just unbearably attractive uh, Stevie Nicks fan villain from that film. So it'll be. It's oh, that's right. Yeah, she's it, the uh, the heavy. She's Rose, she's the, um, yeah, she's Rose the Rose, Hat. Rose the Hat, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Do you guys want to watch the trailer for the new Dune and uh, fuck yeah to this to this conversation? I, I, show me, baby. All right. I, I have it on here. I like I like uh I think Zendaya is a good actress. I like anything that yeah. I've really uh yeah, I like anything that I've really seen her in. I've only hmm. seen her in Spider Man, okay. but she seems fine on that, so sure. I don't, I don't think I well, yeah, she, I she had that uh, spy show on Disney, which I, I actually like legit kind of enjoyed. The sun in Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Sorry. Rolling over the sands. Where'd they shoot this anyway? The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? A boy, <laughs> Duncan. Can I trust you with something? Yes. I gotta say, I do dig how they have ornithopters uh, this time. About a girl on Arrakis. I don't know what it means. Dreams make good stories. But everything important happens when we're awake. Hey, you. you want some muscle? Mm-hmm. No. We are a house of trades. There is no call. We do not answer. There is no faith that we betray. Smile, Gurney. I am smiling. The Emperor asks us to bring oh, peace. Oh, yeah, Roland is Gurney. I forgot about that. House of Trades accepts. I know you. There's something awakening in my mind. You need to face your fears. Come with me. Need to be ready. We never met Harkonnens before. They're not human. They're brutal. The Duke suddenly sees too much. This is why Dune kill them all. God in heaven. Get everything with guns off the ground. Go. This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. That was not the future of House Atreides. A great man doesn't seek to lead. He's called to it. But if your answer is no, You'll still be the only thing I ever needed you to be. 
my son. If anything happens, will you protect Paul? With my life. Only together can we stand a chance. So unless I'm wrong, I, I caught the uh, one of the writers from um, ah fuck, what was it? Not um, not Alien Covenant. What was the one? Um, what was this? What was the pseudo uh, the shitty Alien reboot from 2012 that uh, everybody hated? And I would I ranted about because um, the director, what's his face, um, changed a lot. Do you remember the one, with, the one that had Idris Elba and uh, and Charlie's Theron in it? The one with the the, the alien one that has like, uh, oh, yeah 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 alien was it Covenant? Alien? No, no, before oh, Covenant, Covenant. It, was, it was like it was the prequel Alien one. Prometheus. Prometheus. That no, was Prometheus it. isn't an alien movie though. It that's is like, a remake. Oh I mean, yes, it, it is. It, it, it's, in, it's in the mythology, but it's okay. Sure. Well, I think I don't know if it's necessarily a remake, but it's definitely they tried to like retcon some shit. But I just remember the John Sp- something. John, Flawed I can't movie. Spod, yeah, yeah Flawed movie. But it's a it's that he was the writer on it. But although he did say that a lot of his shit got over uh, over uh, over overrided overrode by whatever uh, Ridley Scott wanted to do that day, and it kind of uh, went sideways. Anyway. Honestly, though, that's kind of the perfect director cop out. Like, as someone that is a aspiring director, like the two of them are the the edit thing and the um, like. Oh, sorry, I had an override. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah. Sun was in my eyes. Yeah, exactly. The yeah. Uh, can, can I can I just say that on that trailer before like it leaves everyone's memory, which maybe it already has. Uh, the so, <laughs> fucking Hans Zimmer. I don't. I don't. I fucking hate Hans Zimmer. And he he's always working, and I don't understand why. Uh, and again, by, and when I say Hans Zimmer, I I really mean like Hans Zimmer's team, because like it's not just one dude. It's like, but he, like his stuff is so vanilla, hackneyed, and overplayed. And just like how for a time period Hollywood had every trailer had a well known song, but done kind of quiet and acoustic instead, it's hacky to use him. And I I'm I'm pissed off about that because I actually. I don't, f- I don't like Toto at all, but I think that like the Toto's work in Dune is like the best thing they ever did by far, and it you works. Don't, you don't like movie. a song about you don't like a song where the guy's sitting on a plane and he's thinking about <laughs> Africa, and he's like comparing it to his relationships, and he's like, wow, you know, I I, I bless the rains down in Africa. Like I don't know that song. It, it has a, a luscious mythos. It has a story to it. Look, when it shows up in the TV show, Chuck, I loved it. All right. Like, that's fine. But like, I'm just saying overall from from a perspective of and, and I'm saying this as like the musician in, in, in this grouping. Right. Hans Zimmer pisses me off and makes everything that he's involved with a little more mediocre. Yet he is the predominant like, hey, do you have a big like a quote unquote big movie that you need a score for? Just get Hans Zimmer. He'll he'll shit it out and it'll be sound just like everything else he does. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, as as Gene was saying, that's exactly why he gets in there is because yeah. it's one of those things where to be really popular, to be really like top of the charts, 
so to speak. You can't be too good. You have to be like just good uh, enough. Yeah, <laughs> mediocre enough. Also, would you say Hans Zimmer is the James Patterson of uh, Hollywood <laughs> genre film scores? And you know this is gonna be the one. You know this is gonna be the one thing I cut for Twitter, right? One tonight when I. <laughs> Well, Hans Zimmer can blow me. Just as long as yeah, just make sure that all of our names and links are, are spelled properly. Yeah. Yeah, Come at me, bro. Let's do yeah, this. Let's like, do please it. make sure that all of our podcasts are linked. <laughs> I mean, I, I just want to add to like, like the one thing that drives me crazy about this uh new movie is the uh the desaturation of color in it. Yeah, that's and like, that's, like yeah, I, I really good. do think like like um uh that movie is so beige, and, and I mean literally like it is mostly beige. Man. It's well, like, gray, right? It's gray more than yeah. I mean the the color the color palette is is desaturated. It's, it's slightly gray. warmer because it's it's got the the sand, you know. But but like it, the the problem is is everything is beige. We're like you know I you know like like make Dune you know freaking red. It is it's supposed to be like cinnamon, right? That's what it smells yeah. like. You Cinemark. know, uh, make it as colorful as that that uh, Bill Sienkiewicz comic. Um, yeah. make the the throne room of the uh, emperor. Make it as gorgeous and ornate and as golden purple i mean i mean the, the you know the the uh uh lynch movie it was like donald trump's apartment with all the gold but like yeah. you know um but bring in some purple to, to it as well and make it look royal as fuck well i think the ships really do hit how i imagine the ships to look when i read the book like these huge like they don't look like ships in our sense of, uh, you know, in the sense that spaceships are usually portrayed, they have these kind of weird monumental shapes. I would give it a chance, Andrew. I think. Um, oh, I'm not saying I'm not going to give the movie a chance. I'm just saying, like, like my my first, like, like I as an artist, I am insulted by the colors. Um, I, you're you're I, insulted I, as I am about the score I, by hand. Yeah, like, like the yeah. thing is, it's like, like uh, when, when you watched um, uh, Nomadland, like, like a lot of complaints you, for a movie what we you haven't say, even seen yet. Yeah, I know. <laughs> what you say about that's bad enough. Yeah. Um and, and again, that trailer should have never been thought of, and where it should have stayed was the idea phase. First of all, how dare you? Secondly, <laughs> the, the trailer's trying to get you to want to watch it. So, like, you know, this is supposed to be like enticing yeah. you, and all I see is bleach. But no, but the, the thing is, is like if you watch uh Nomad Land, they, they also had desaturated colors because they were filming it like uh, post sundown and, and, and just before the sun rose where, where you have like the sky is amazing and everything on the ground is almost black and white. And that's, that's fine. Like, like if they're going to shoot some scenes like that, I get that, but like make the sky then not be beige. Yeah. Well, all right. Did so you I think this is, I think this is a really good, um, I guess, comparison of, of the two eras. Like I think that, um, if I was going to make a, a, a color statement about, um, color statement never sounds good coming from a white guy but if i was <laughs> if i was gonna make some kind of like statement about um the art design in uh in the 1984 version of dune i think that it's almost colorful to a fault you know what i mean like in, in the sense of like everything is in that era is like really ornate the set designs took so long probably longer than the actual like i don't know like the the, the script took to write you know what i mean like they've really designed all these things and tried to make things look as cool as possible to the point where you feel like someone's just throwing shit at a dartboard almost. And like, yeah, lots, lots of technicolor. But, but yeah. I mean, on the flip side, you think it was throwing, like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. You throwing shit at a dartboard. Do you think it was random? There's, there doesn't seem like anything random about that to me. No, Maybe but some... there's just tons of like, like, I don't know. It's like a, a 
phrase that means like like the idea like people put a bunch of ideas out there and like any idea really they were like all right well let's just take this and like you know i mean there just seems like there's so much in it and it's so uh, the the 1984 version of dune feels like it's it's giving you a lot it's really giving you well, a lot at once but i feel like all of it's very calculated whether whether it works or not is a different question but i feel like it's all, all right, incredible yeah. maybe maybe throw shit and, and i mean the 80s is. were known for being based just as in like oh. yeah well i don't i don't mean i don't mean in a sense of uh, i'm sorry everything is random. just I mean, I mean everything in a sense of like it just seems like so many ideas are coming at you in 1984 when at once everything's brightly colored, everything is ex extremely like 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 80s rock, like and like kind of glam in, in a weird sense. Like and, and now in this version of it, the, the desaturation, um, it, it feels like that's kind of this art, like this generation's version of fantasy filmmaking is very by the book a lot of times if there's a book version of it, you know what I mean? They try to adapt it as much as possible. It feels very serious and it doesn't, it doesn't have the same, uh, like it doesn't have any of that campiness that made the eighties. Everything's gritty these days. Yeah. Everything, everything has to be gritty. You know, like just look at how every, everything's going. It goes through cycles, right? I think we're, I think we're, we've, we've reached peak gritty I think we're now on the sort of downslide from Gritty to Camp again. I've just been watching the new He-Man reboot, which oh, is like yeah. colorful as shit. Just all, yeah, purples and blues and vermilion, yeah. And it's very campy. Whereas if you go to 2011 uh, and watch the Thundercats reboot, it's all gritty Thundercats. Yeah. yeah, but who the fuck wants that? You know what I mean? Like, it's a gritty yeah, reboot. This is actually my plan for a gritty TV TV series: is a gritty reboot of Bucky O'Hare, right? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Did you say yeah. Bucky? Bucky, Bucky, Bucky. O'Hare. Yeah, my Bucky idea O'Hare. Something, something, would be something, something. that yeah. the kid who creates the door through his uh, like, in, in, you know, to go through to the Bucky O'Hare universe. The kid actually is like living in an abusive family, and Ooh, like, and, okay. and, and like this is his escape route. But we never know if he's like having a full mental breakdown or he really is going to the Bucky O'Hare universe. And basically, the frogs aren't just like conquering people; they're exterminating all the other animals. And it's like a, they have like, Damn. yeah, that's my gritty reboot pitch. Stop talking! Day. You've made the sale. Let's make this picture, man. Let's go. Yeah, Bucky <laughs> O'Hare, Captain, and Bucky. Yeah, Bucky O'Hare is like the rabbit. Gritty world. reboot of Bucky O'Hare. But gritty. Stay with me here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, one quick on the desaturation. It's I will say this. It is. It's kind of difficult and seems even like self-defeating to have a film or a property where you know blue within blue eyes being desaturated. Yeah. Uh, it seems like you're like why would you no like no you, you gray take, within you, gray you, eyes. Yeah. You like you no know, you take yeah. this you take that slider and you ram it all the way to the right. Come on. This is uh, this yeah. isn't that hard, but. That, that that's what uh, you know like, like that, the thing is those i don't think the 80s movie is oh, like overly saturated except for maybe the eyes um I, yeah. I, I think i think it's it's kind of uh near perfect i you know a, as it is uh because like each place has its own kind of feel to it and its own color schemes uh, for the most part i don't think it's perfect um but but i do think a lot of thought and care went into all those decisions uh what you're seeing on screen and and 80s was very beige. Everything in the 80s, like like remember like all the wood paneling and the brown suits 
like like you know going into the 90s the 80s were so beige everybody thinks of it as like neon colors and whatnot it's like no nah, it's like you wear that on the background of like beige on beige on beige like you know look at look look at look at my childhood cafeteria look how beige yeah. This is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking more about i guess like sci-fi filmmaking more than i am talking about because we've okay, had this okay. conversation a bunch of times about like how everything kind of that was making any kind of statement in the 80s had to be making the statement in such an absurdist kind of way because the consensus was so like you know business oriented any like we had this conversation with repo man we had this conversation with uh with tape heads like you know what i mean like everything had to be so absurdist to that point so i guess i was using the saturation point as like a metaphor almost like you know what i mean like but i i no, no, that's not, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was going to say, I actually have a point to the saturation, which is you've seen all of Villanueva's movies, which I, uh, I've i seen almost all of them, and, and I love all of them. Enemy? Uh, if you've seen Enemy with uh, uh, what, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal, whatever. Uh, excellent. Excellent use of desaturation within the story at, to show... Uh, and if you haven't seen it, I don't want to spoil anything because it's really good, but like... It also has got to turn around at the end. And you're like, what the what? But like the way that he has everything just be very like tan and beige and just kind of like washed out of all color. It's specifically the cinematography is set up in such a way that that's part of the story and almost a character within the story. So I trust that dude that like if he's doing that for those shots, then maybe that's that way for a reason. Because the guy really has an incredible sense of color and composition. That's in all of it, you know, Cesario, uh, Prisoners, the, the the Blade Runner sequel, um, Arrival. All of these movies, they, they they have a real kind of cognizance of what he's doing with, uh, with 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 color and saturation. Like more so, I think than a lot of like I like the movie 1917, but I think the color is all it had going for it. You know, again, Hans Zimmer, that hack was in that as well. But you had Roger Deakins cinematography. So it looked beautiful. But it's that one kid fucking running around getting shot at for like two hours. Do you want to see that? Great. That's what it is. Hey, Hans Zimmer, I'm sorry that Conan Neutron is being like this. You want to come, <laughs> come on our podcast and talk about filmmaking? You're perfectly welcome to. This is a, this is not a, I wouldn't say a pro Hans Zimmer space, but a neutral space. He, he he's gonna cry himself to sleep on his like tens of millions of dollars that he makes from scoring literally every movie. That one podcast, but no one really watches. What's the other one? There's a there's a another there's a Scandinavian chappy who's doing who did I think he did he did Tenant and he did uh, the the one with Baby Yoda, the Mandalorian. What's his name? <laughs> the that one, guy. aka the one with Baby Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> that guy oh, the, the, like, oh, there who, did, who did the score uh hey let me check there real quick let's say about the director or what man no the guy, guy who did the score no, you're, you're talking about the the, the guy who did the score for that I, yeah. I don't remember i know you're talking about i don't remember but uh he's 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 much better i like that guy the tenant yeah, he's soundtrack, the, yeah. the tenants the tenant soundtrack is a good soundtrack uh it's a shame that that soundtrack was wasted on such a piss poor movie <laughs> it's mid-tier to like i charitably even call it mid-tier nolan that's like which is like wow incredible concept and like that was okay you could have done a whole lot more with it that's what nolan's had. movies always look good and he always has like he has like there are always good aspects to his movies but sometimes you just go it's like the idea is like Honestly, I thought the idea for fucking Tenant was kind of a bit stupid too. Uh, Ludwig oh, Gorenson? Ludwig yeah. Gorenson, yeah. 
But uh, no, I, I Tenet is interesting because I finally watched it, and it's interesting if you real if you watch it and realize much like certain bits of uh, Christopher Nolan's. Um, the fuck was his like his dream film? Much like yeah, much Inception. Yeah. yeah, so much like that. Uh, Tenet makes sense if you realize this is the closest to a Bond film he is ever going to be allowed to make. Yeah, like it's, having, it's a Bond film with reverse time travel, basically. That, yeah, that's, it's that's like you have like you have like do your dudes, you know, clean cut dudes. One of them is English. Apparently, Robert Pattinson says he even like patterned his accent on Michael Caine for some strange reason. But you have clean cut dudes in good in sharp suits, globe trot. I mean, there's a fucking catamaran race. It's like if your film is a catamaran race, it's like okay, yeah, there's some, there's some bond shit going on here. Okay, can I also say that uh, that ties it back to Interstellar, also a Nolan joint, which has anybody? Odd Zimmer. No, no, not Zimmer. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, Timothy, Timothy Chalamet, who uh, has played Modi. The guy who, oh, the, I would say the, the guy who's uh, who might become uh, Tennessee's governor. Tennessee's Texas's governor. McConaughey. McConaughey. Yeah, he, he is, yeah, but he's, I, he's batting around. So. But we're talking about Dune, and th that dude, That's the dude that's in Interstellar, also directed by Nolan, is going to be the Colin McLaughlin. Uh, well, I think Nolan could have directed Dune as well, actually. I think he would have done an okay job with Dune. You know what? Nolan is uh, like what stupid people think smart movies are. Like, like that's what dumb people think that uh, I'm not saying that the movies are bad or anything. I just think like dumb people think that's what uh, Kubrick is. A and uh, I, I just kind of like Memento. You didn't think Memento was interesting or like, worthwhile? I like no, I like you. I like uh, uh, Nolan films. It's just Memento was his best movie though. Like it's been downhill yeah. since. Yeah, I like yeah. Dunkirk. I thought Dunkirk kicked the shit out of nineteen seventeen as far as war movies go. Uh, from oh, I haven't seen. I don't. I don't. I tend not to watch that many war movies. They do me. Well, if you've ever seen Come and See, there's no reason to watch any other war movie ever. But like, yeah, Dunkirk. If you watch, if you watch Paths of Glory, there's no reason to yeah watch any it's other. Also other movie. I think Come and See is better than Paths of Glory. But I like Paths of Glory a lot. But I know you're talking about a recent episode four, so I will. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm shouting out our Tuesday episode. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I um subscribe. by the way, like and subscribe, <laughs> which you can watch now. <laughs> yeah, because it's the future. Uh, real quick, the year, I, the year is ten thousand uh, one hundred and ninety ninety nine. And the Padishah Emperor Shaddam the Fourth sits on the Karina throne. <laughs> <laughs> I will see us off. Where does the name Arrakis comes from? It comes from yeah. the Arabic world, al, a word al Rax. The dancer. There you go. Oh. And uh, uh, yeah, apparently, uh, Quizot Hadrak is Hebrew. Nick Nack, Patty Whack, give a dog. Oh, oh real quick. I just got to say that I, I, sorry to interrupt things, but I just realized looking around here that apparently they really did have put out a Jungle Cruise film starring The Rock that's going to be that. Uh, yeah, I've, seen, I've, I've seen the trailer. Is this the only earth that I can live on? It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I think that. One one point that we're at in uh in in our society, I think uh like decolonization movements and liberation movements are taken very seriously in our history because obviously we're in like the the post Cold War um consensus of of you know at least at least understanding that like our our Cold War polar version of the world was a mistake obviously um like like how we conceive the world so I think colonization is taken a lot more seriously as a concept so it's interesting to me that that trailer um. Like, like the Dune is taken a lot more seriously now in this conception of it. 
um, as a as a very serious uh, movie. Like obviously, there's like a lot more representation. Obviously, like it's not just like a bunch of white people on a on a planet that's being colonized yeah. or you know what I mean. Like the resources are being extracted from. Like it, it's obviously like a very um, very multi ethnic casting, I guess. So that was something that I wanted to point out about this too. Um, I also think that the indigenous sovereignty that also exists in the 1984 movie is probably going to hit differently now. Uh, not the least of which is the fact that it is a diverse cast, right? And the fact that, like, if yeah, if you know the source material, you're like, oh, that's awesome. You know, this is like, this the, the, this is the like you guys are invading our land and trying to extract our resources, uh, sort of um, uh, consequences. Oh no, it's the consequences of my actions, kind of statement. And then I think it's I think it's gonna hit way different. And I think in the same way that like I was excited when I heard they were making a Black Panther movie, and I don't want to talk about the merits of the Black Panther movie, but from a representational standpoint, I was like, this Killmonger was right. Yeah. <laughs> Look, Killmonger's from Oakland, just like me. So Don't, uh, the... don't, don't you like hear Jason Pascal here you say you like the Black Panther movement, otherwise you're liable I... to get a Mau Mau. I, 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 look, look, I love those dudes. I disagree with them about a couple uh, movies and that's okay, but because because it all well, comes out of it, the, uh, is it okay? Is it okay? Well, when I think it is. They keep inviting me back. So, <laughs> but, but what, what I was what I was getting at with that was with um, as Black Panther was uh, representationally, whether it's for us or for not, and whether Killmonger was right or not. Hashtag Killmonger was right. Uh, I, I think that the um, indigenous sovereignty aspects, as well as the class solidarity things, again, assuming it isn't excised like the ecology aspect was for the 1984 movie, I think it's going to hit differently. I think people are going to like. I think that's going to be foregrounded. I think that's going to be something that like people like are thinking about a lot when they're talking about this film. Maybe yeah. not. I know. We'll see. Maybe I mean, maybe they dumped it. Who knows? <laughs> watching watching the trailer, it's something that I felt like they were taking very seriously, which is which is definitely good. But you know, it, after watching, I guess like like the white the white people as colonized uh, Middle Eastern like you know what I mean like like people like version of it in the 1980s. It's it's interesting to see that treated um, so seriously to think about where we were at that time, I think, uh, culturally and where we are now. Although I will say the, uh, I, I will say the, the one comp, well, one, one of the complicating factors is, uh, and I don't think this shows up in the first book, but it's definitely in the later books on well, the, in the, in the later couple books, but it actually gets into about how the Fremen of Arrakis. I mean, at some point it's kind of a thing of like, I mean, they weren't biologically from there. So it, it, at a certain point is like, how far back do you, um, do indigenous claims go in terms of, I mean, they were, I think they'd been there for, you know, for a couple thousand years, but at least the, uh, you know, so had the, uh, the Bene the Bene Gesserits, you know, working among them to kind of just like to salt various, um, you know, to salt this mythology in there just in case, um, they, uh, you know, they had a few of their agents who wound up crashing on that planet and needed protection or something. Well, I mean, but at the same time, you know, a couple thousand years ago, um, walking across the Barren Strait, like, you know, uh, like our conception of indigenous people weren't necessarily fully from here. If you talk about where humans originated from, yeah, it's true. So it, it's an interesting, um, you know, because I think that that's a when it comes to colonization and when it comes to those uh, conversations, like that's something that needs to be. Um, you know, you know, thought of thought of in a nuanced way because you know, I mean, because humans all originated from the same, you know, at least the same area, and everyone kind of moved outward, and we're kind of learning more about that, and maybe that that's not fully the case, and that there were 
groups that like we're constantly kind of discovering, you know, uh, that our timelines are kind of not as, as, as details as we think they are, I think, but like, it, it's a, you know, it's a conversation that when, when you talk about No, it's kind of like the Kurds, kind of like all stateless people. But I think the the bad, the the um, I don't know if uh, Frank Herbert read this, but like it very much fits in with the work of the um, late medieval scholar Ibn Khaldun. And Ibn Khaldun was like very influential because his work was translated. It was one of the, uh, you know, he was once called the angles of uh, of the Islam Islamic world because he provided this kind of like uh, way of looking at is Islamic history in a cyclical fashion. And I don't know if Frank Herbert got that firsthand because Ibn Khaldun was kind of well known. You could, you know, it was translated into English in the 19th century. So you would have been, he would have been able to read him or got him secondhand because a lot of the work, which obviously Frank Herbert referenced for reading, you know, doing the research for, 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 for writing June was influenced by Khaldunian notions of, uh, of society. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, obviously June has echoes of Islamic uh, history as well. But, you know, what the Khaldunian kind of uh, notion of history is that you have, like, it's based on ecology, right? You have, like, uh, you have an urban civilization, but urban civilizations tend to become decadent and corrupt, and their elites are seduced by luxury, whereas living in hard and tough ecology breeds tough people who are bonded together with this concept of asabir, which is like a group spirit, and that kind of group spirit is a requirement for living in the you know on the edges of civilization whether that's the desert the plains or the mountains uh, and it breeds a warrior people and you know you kind of see that dynamic playing through uh, in um, in um, in dune because you have these people on the margins of civilization who come to conquer the uh, the decadent and soft urban yeah. civilizations and then themselves Water corrupted, fat. Yep. corrupted over time and become decadent uh, 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 and themselves. And that's very much, you know, uh, how Islamic history, at least, you know, before the sort of modern era was conceptualized. And there's a lot of validity, validity to it. So you can see those kind of themes between, you know, the, the, the noble uh, uh, people living on the margins of empire who may have a cruel way of life but it is like a life that is is dictated by a code of honor and a sense of like uh, community and uh, a mutual um, obligation to one another, and then this decadent this decadent civilization which is increasingly corrupt, and how the the fremen themselves eventually become cru uh, corrupt by the due to their sort of exposure to. Uh, urban civilization. So this is kind of interesting parallel and dynamic. I don't know if Herbert got that directly from Ibn Khaldun, but Ibn Khaldun influenced many of the Western writers on the Middle East as well. So Gene, I'm so happy you were able to take such a nice break from uh, your your historical scholarship <laughs> and your research and just yeah, really, get into a, really get into a book series that was totally different. Yeah, well, you say, I, I only I only ever like honestly this is true. 
I only ever read uh, like science fiction and fantasy uh, because like a lot of the serious novels, I find like the serious stuff that you're supposed to read, uh, it just makes me depressed. And I'm yeah. Like, no, I don't. That's why I don't really watch war movies or like serious people. Like, have you seen this serious like? like this serious Iranian movie, which is about like a divorce. I'm like, why the hell would I watch that? That sounds like really depressing. I'm like, uh, and people will tell me there's this new TV series. I forget the name. It's like a Turkish TV series, which shows all the like sadness and, and contradiction. I was like, why, why would I want to watch that movie? I made myself do myself a sad. I want to watch <laughs> G-Man, right? Yeah. I want to watch like, you know, stupid things. The the yeah the new I think you should leave, uh, real quick. Uh, two quick questions, Gene. Do you have a book? Do you have a book suggestion for folks who would want to find out more about uh, uh, Hadoon, the writer? That uh, that Frank- Hadoon? Yes, you can yeah. you can get his book, the Mukaddama in English. It's actually pretty, it's pretty easily available, and it's not that difficult to read. Uh, you know, it's like pretty simple. He lays out his like. He, he lays out his political theory. Why he's influential was because he was one of the, like, uh, not the first, but he kind of condensed, uh, he, he'd like built on a, a kind of secular understanding of like historical cycles, you know, not putting everything down to God's will, but, you know, trying to f- find out the underlying economic, uh, economic sort of drives behind uh, change in Islamic society. So you can right. find the Kadma and Ibn Khaldun pretty easily in English. There are several editions. But if you want to, and, and Ibn Khaldun is like how Muslims interpret it. Yeah. Uh, the, the the second thing I wanted to say is that there's even a line from the film of, uh, as Paul says, uh, we Fremen have a saying, God created Arrakis to train the faithful. One cannot go against the word of God. And even, I mean, also in the, uh, in, in this new trailer, you know, they're talking about how um, we, we accept all faiths. Like faith feels like it plays a big role in uh, Frank Herbert's conception of, of, these communities in Dune, so it's- yeah, it's a lot. It's because it's a book about it's a good about. There you go. It's a book about uh, prophecy and prophets, and yeah, like what the eighty four movie misses is that the the entire basis of that prophecy is fabrication, because yeah. the mythology that is created was implanted by the Bene Gesserit. It, for for their own likes uh, interests, by their own agenda, and, yeah, uh, their own political agenda, and uh, like Paul Mondeeb is not like he has like miraculous powers, but he he isn't like you know shit. Ha- he loses like people forget this. Like he gets his kids killed. Like his first kids are killed in, in, in the book. They're like fucking mur- they're like murdered during the final battle. Yeah. Uh, like the twins that are born afterwards are like his second set of kids. So, so it's a whole, tra- and then Paul, uh, like for the next two books, Mordiba's like, just fucks off. He's like, I'm done with this. This is bullshit. I don't want to go. I, I don't want to do this. Uh, it's nuts. And like uh, Alia, like creates this giant, like religious cult and infrastructure based on, 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 on base uh, on like kind of manipulating the, um, the mythology created in what was essentially an attempt by the Atreides to get revenge on the Harkonnens. Yeah, almost like like uh, almost like uh, I don't necessarily want to bring up Nietzsche's sister, but kind of similar in terms of uh, 
you know, the family member taking the work of the original and kind of uh, changing and running wild in it, wild with it uh, to extents that the original person would not necessarily uh, acknowledge. But yeah, it's, it's well, that is one of the, uh, it, also too, on your point about the thing that the, the 84 film misses is the, and almost like the, the syncretic nature of the religions. Again, we, you know, as Virginia Madis, Madsen uh, tells us in the opening talk, you know, this, this know that it is the year 10191. So you have the two main, the, two of the biggest faiths they talk about is Zen Sunni, but also the Orange Catholic, Orange Catholic Bible. Bible yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, exactly. You know, like faith is a critical part of this book about like lifting the curtain on faith as well you know because it is i think there's a kind of critical aspect to the to the religious uh aspect of it and again it kind of mirrors the origins of islam because you know islam as we know today was not created until long after the prophet muhammad's death like the quran was not compiled until after muhammad's death the main schools of islamic law weren't really formulated until you know a couple of hundred years after uh, after Muhammad's death. So, you know, it's kind of like watching Frank Herbert is kind of giving a story about how this new faith was created, the 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 unleashing of this uh uh sort of noble savage people, the Fremen, and that the their martial energies that are basically mobilized to as the foundation of this empire because the you know the second book is all about this new jihad that is taking place in the name of Mordeep. So it's like pretty, it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of parallels with Islamic history. The, uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind, which I think is interwoven with the ecological themes that are in the book, because, you know, this notion of ecology and how it shapes societies is very much found in Ibn Khaldun's work when he talks about People in the city are like uh, he, he like sheep, you know, are like sheep because they're protected by walls and they rule, you know, they hire guards to fight for them. Whereas the people in the in, in, on the edges of civilization, they may have a cruder lifestyle, but they have some kind of noble codes and group solidarity that breaks down under the pressures of empire and urban civilization. Yeah, and that I think that plays a, that plays a point uh, in the in the text. Like they, there is literally an insult. Maybe it's I don't think it's I don't know if it's literal, but it it is definitely an insult or a pejorative the Fremen have to the city dwellers. He calls them like what is it? Either water soft or water fat. Of like all of these uh, all the colonial imperial types. So I I might it might be I mean maybe not reading into it, but at the same time as we've done this stream and like I've watched uh, doing a couple times. Um, you know, in the last couple of days, I've been kind of doing this weird, uh, like CIA, like Cold War book reading binge. Like I read everything by Stephen Kinzer first, and now I'm reading like the Devil's Chessboard. And good year, that's heavy. Um, and so, well, I, I like go on bike rides, and I like, you know, I mean, I want to get more in depth with like history. Yeah, get and, some light fare going in for the ride. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, but no, so I, so, positive history. Yeah. So I was thinking about, um, I guess, decolonization as an idea and the fact that, you know, when Dune was written in 1965, we're kind of leaving, um, you know, for the first time, I think during the Cold War, like Kennedy was raising these points um, before his passing in 1963 that, you know, although he was a Cold Warrior and, you know, not not a great uh, 
foreign policy president, he also kind of raised these points about colonization and about um, like the like the third worldist movements and how, you know, we need to support liberation or else it, it kind of he think he thought that like those nationalist movements, which weren't inherently anti-American necessarily. I mean, except where we were imperialist, you know what I mean? Or or that weren't inherently uh, leftist. If, if you didn't support liberation movements that suddenly um, that you were that, that, you know, obviously they're going to turn to the Soviets, which is kind of not the point whatsoever, I think. But, you know, still you have these you have those things being raised for the first time, I think, by Kennedy. Um, and as, as something more nuanced than like the Eisenhower Dulles version of it, which is just like anything that's not inherently pro-American is pro-Soviet and we should destroy it. So yeah. it's interesting that we get into Vietnam and Kennedy obviously had plans to escalate Vietnam, but LBJ was the one that really, you know, pulled the trigger and really, I mean, no pun intended and, and, uh, and escalated, ooh, um, ooh, Viet ooh, yeah, yeah. And escalated <laughs> Vietnam to, to that point. So it's interesting that Dune comes out in 1965 as that's going on, um, slowly and, and our conception of, of our like cold war, uh, bipolar for lack of a better word conception of the world is kind of coming back after a few years where it seems like i mean algeria was happening like all these different uh times where kennedy was like well maybe it's time for a more nuanced treatment and it feels like this movie is um well not this movie this movie kind of over like glosses over the whole thing but like the book is written at a time when maybe colonization is treated for the first time uh decolonization with some nuance and and you know uh some understanding um, which I think is, is interesting because by the time it's the eighties, you know, I mean, Reagan obviously is just a fucking sociopath, like as all of our presidents are, but you know, I mean like operation condor and everything is taking place where it's just like, Reagan's like, no, burn it all to the ground. Like <laughs> if it's not deferential to American interests. So these two things are taking place at a time. I think where colonization is at, at or decolonization is, is at the forefront of people's minds versus a time where maybe that kind of takes a back burner, but it feels like now. We're at a time where uh, colonization and the ideas of indigenous sovereignty, like all of this stuff, is taking a lot, taken a lot more seriously in the last few years, um, as as topics that, like, you know, people like e even even kind of the most mainstream uh, politicians at least play lip service to it, even if their policies are inherently destructive. Like, you know, I mean, I think back to, uh, and I think uh, Jason Miles played the um, the Marlon. Was a Marlon Brando with the Godfather Oscar speech where yeah where he where he sent a, yeah he sent an indigenous woman up there to accept his award yep. for him. She, actress. I mean that was considered so radical and so crazy that like you know there was talk of like if he hadn't had the uh, the goodwill from you know all his like years and years of of uh, work that the Academy has honored like if he had been like a, a younger man if it had been like you know the on the waterfront like era or something along those he might have been given the treatment you know he might have been given the uh the, the rose mcgowan treatment and just I swear to God, if you were the best actor that we've had in the last century we, we'd fucking destroy you but but because it was a radical action and, and with the efficacy of it and like whether it was a correct messenger i don't care like frankly it doesn't matter to me because the point of fact is that someone with power used that power to platform a, a, an individual with a message and that message uh is something that at the time was not getting through. I mean, I think at the same time, Alcatraz was like taken over. Uh, that was like around that was, you know, the same era. I mean, I was like, I was busy. Being a baby. 
time. I don't know, man. Like, but. yeah, a few, a few <laughs> about, according to the wiki, three or four years before that speech was, that was when Sashin really, really uh, came to prominence. Just real quick, coming back to like, I've said it a million times already for this show, but I think that like, I think the indigenous sovereignty message in the 1984 film works well, even though they don't look like indigenous people uh, representation wise. Like but the I brave, think they're like the Braveheart version of indigenous. Exactly. <laughs> sure. Sure. Right. But like, but in that same way of that, I, I think it's, you know, and I mentioned this before as well, that I think that um, hopefully in the Villanueva um, Dune, we're going to see that with representation. And it's going to be impactful for people. And in a way that like that has, uh, you know, not that like, oh, I'll praise Marlon Brando because he did this thing. But like, because those types of actions have become more mainstream, uh, I think that, you know, we might see the needle move on that or it might not be in the movie at all. I don't know. I haven't seen the movie. I've only seen the sequel and basically I use an excuse to bash Hans Zimmer, who's a hack, but you know, whatever. I mean, I think that it, it I think it comes through in the trailer at least. Like the, the It looks like it's going to go that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen enough I, movies that I'm like, mm, yeah. Also, I appreciate the, uh, the water, the water planet representation. The fact that they have Jason Momoa playing the, uh, play, playing like, you know, his, his teacher and, and the planet is completely. Duncan Idaho. <laughs> exactly yeah yeah if, if, you have, if you have this if you have the sacred water you know that uh of, of course you'd want aquaman to you know yeah to, to, to top it off like like if he climbs up a wall he would make a woman do the o face <laughs> just like the fourth book so no I, I was gonna go each person um to give their concluding thoughts i know you still have some stuff you wanted to bring up so um i, I just feel like you know we've hit uh, I, don't, I still think of Jason Momoa's Kyle Drago is all I was going to say for that. <laughs> <laughs> or my right, so, uh, I guess I'm going to go. I'm going to go uh, backwards to the way that we, I did it. You know, to start out with, and ask Jeremy. Uh, so, concluding thoughts and anything else you want to add to this conversation before we go. My concluding thoughts are that this is such a. Probably, I, I don't even know if like Herbert uh, meant meant this when he was first, you know, researching. Because like, I mean, this is that's the that's the fun thing. the The whole film, the whole uh, Dune phenomenon came out of him covering desert reclamation efforts in Oregon. And for plenty of people who don't live in here in Oregon, do um, don't understand that. Yeah, we got deserts here, like a lot of them. And it was kind of like him, like watching the deserts, like like in like nineteen fifty nine or so, and realizing uh, how the dunes worked and how the the reclamation efforts worked. Kind of like started like trickling, you know, certain ecological ideas into his head. Uh, but I want to say is that the this is one of those things where we, you can't just do an episode or like two. We've gone for like two hours, 15, and we're only talking about like one film, you know, a, a <laughs> film. Like, do you, I mean, there, it's it's not, I mean, you can get not just like like six hours of talk about this. It's, you can get like entire, like, you know, full on, like, uh, you can do entire, sh uh, like, uh, podcasts just about like doing ephemera and you know mul you know years worth of content here talking about the stuff about how rich it is and how much it is um you know both real world things uh kind of feed into it and come out of it and how it mixes with everything else and how a lot of people uh you know encounter it and is in it has affected them in their real lives um 
uh, other than that, all I gotta say is I hope to Christ the film does not suck and or is boring. Uh, it probably it would be very very hard for it to be boring. So I gotta say is like yeah, it, and it's um, it's gonna be it, I think it's gonna be interesting and appropriate because I'm willing to bet good money that um, Dune will be the film that a lot of people return to the theater for the first time in almost two years to see. Especially mm-hmm. like if they're showing it at the local IMAX, because if they're at, the, I mean, if it's at the local, uh, you know, I mean, here in Oregon we have OMSI, which is the uh, Museum of uh, Science and Industry, the you know huge ass uh, IMAX theater. It's like if they have it there for an affordable price, it's like, you know, F it, we'll go. Yeah. So, yeah, and and, and I think that's I think it's also interesting that it's still kind of done in this in this way that you know it, it's available on HBO Max, obviously, which everything on Warner Brothers really is all of the big releases, but it does feel like a movie that you want to see in a theater. Um, I, I don't think that it's necessarily uh, a movie that you want to just be like, all right, well, I'm at home and like it's Saturday and I'm bored. Like I'm going to watch uh, Dune. Like, I think it's something that I think it seems like a, a cinematic, like it seems incredibly cinematic in the sense that you're not going to want to just sit at home. And it does seem like, you know, as theaters are really struggling through this pandemic, uh, as they've been struggling in general, even without the pandemic, you know, we have so much streaming content just to watch at home. Um, I, I am curious to see that part of it. Um, Andy? No, I was just going to say uh, the, the big thing about uh, I, I I liked the different cuts. I, I didn't get to we didn't talk about like which cuts we watched because uh, I think you sent out like a fan cut. And uh, but well, I, I said the one that Conan sent to me. Which which is uh, the the uh, the ostensible release extended cut, but with the miniseries like level of uh, of uh, extra narration with like the stills and stuff like that. You notice it mostly in the first ten minutes. Well, I, I noticed the big thing with the cut that Jay said sent out was the uh, the weird cut and sound, like the sound and the effects yeah. weren't uh, all yeah. the same, and it, it drove me nuts a little bit with this, the sound especially. Um, so I'm glad I watched the theatrical cut the night before I watched that one. Uh, cause the theatrical cut actually, I mean, like it's a two hour movie. It's not, yeah, no, it, it works actually as a film. And, and I don't think enough people, you know, uh, can, can, you know, can say it's like, like, cause I was actually bored during the one where I explained everything. Um, I, I liked the, uh, theatrical cut. I do think a few of the scenes could have made it back in there, but you know, doesn't matter. Um, you know, there's like what fourteen I different think, motions. I think so, what I think what the, the guy that um the guy that edited that and sent it to Vimeo. Um, I'm pretty sure what happened with it is that each um, so there's a bunch of there's a bunch of deleted scenes, obviously, that came up on the DVD. And I think what he did is he took the theatrical release and then cut those scenes back into, if I'm not mistaken, into the. That's what it looked like, which yeah. which didn't have the professional foley work or uh, same level of um, even noise floor in some cases, or, or color corrections, or yeah, the score yeah. matched, or anything like. That. There's a lot of little problems with it that made it really hard to watch, uh, and it's like three hours of just weird score cutting. Um, I'm glad I got to watch the kind of um, you know the the theatrical cut. I wish there was like another option, uh, like the VHS release. The, the um, thing, the thing that really pissed me off is Amazon goes, "Oh, don't worry, we have an extended cut, so you rent yeah. it, and then it gives you the, the two-hour, sixteen-minute cut." And I had already rented it on YouTube, and I thought that like I was going to get a, a longer uh, total bait and switched completely, yeah. just like Bezos and company, man. And that bitch not, is too busy like flying around in penis spaceships to see accurate <laughs> things about Dune. I do think it's, I do think it's amazing that he kind of looks like a penis. 
and then his spatial power. <laughs> you know. Um, all right. So, Gene, including thoughts. June June uh, nineteen eighty four is a watchable movie with some beautiful <laughs> acting and some beautiful cinematography. But I wish they had put that. I wish they had put that in the DVD as a as the recommendation. But watchable, it's, watchable movie. Good I've watched it so many times, so I do like that movie. But after reading the book, it it gets a lot of the feel of Dune in terms of like giving it an atmosphere, but it misses the point of the book, which I think is kind of a tragedy because I think the book is subversive in the way that it has a, a hero, and you know, I hope that the new book. A new movie will be a more faithful adaptation of the book. Yeah, uh, uh, just to echo on that part. Yeah, I uh, think I mentioned this before, but it's also it's almost it's, I think it's very well worth looking back and comparing The Shining and Dune as both. Um, you no, know, no, we don't do that. Sixties and seventies novels that were turned into uh, turned into early eighties films uh, that were s- dramatically different in tone and content and character motivation and. Um, I was going to make a joke about, I don't, but I don't think they actually have any uh, any stars that were in both, so I, I can't make that joke. But still, it's uh, anyway. I know, I know you're probably going to say no to this, and and I don't blame you for this whatsoever. Did you see the uh, the shining stream that we did for Ben's birthday? That actually Andy Andy popped up on too, but uh, for for Ben Burgess's birthday, we did a, a shining stream with uh, Kale Brooks from Jacobin, and it ended up being an at, at least an hour longer than the actual movie of the shining which was pretty fucking incredible <laughs> well and also this is i will say this is a uh i was never a film major but i did take a couple film classes and at some point yeah kubrick films especially kubrick films and film majors can just go uh, again you know, just can just go off so yeah yeah well i was i was a i mean digital media production was our version of uh film but you know I, the film directing is what i want to do eventually as like an actual job like you know what I mean, like like an actual like career, I guess. So I mean, I so I get I get really into this stuff, but I also like I want to have like fun movie discussions, and I feel like they're not necessarily always accessible. So like my my thought is always like, how do I make this more accessible to people um, through this podcasting stuff? But um, but Conan, all right, we're 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 to you, I guess, at this point. Um, Strap in, baby. So <laughs> so a few a few things. Uh, I, I'm excited. So as I mentioned, I'm a big fan of um, uh, Villanueva's other movies. And I think when I heard that there was going to be another Dune made, I was like, oh, no, like, I'm sure that's not going to be great. But then like when I was like, oh, it's that guy. Oh, interesting. That actually might work. So I, I have strong, strong hope that it's going to be totally kick ass. And I think it'll it'll be it'll be unique and interesting, if nothing else. And I, I look forward to it. And I say that as a huge fan of the 1984 Dune. Uh, I do wonder if there's going to be any cat milking, maybe, in, in the new one, you know, to... <laughs> as a boy's action figure. <laughs> Did you? There's an action figure of that? That's incredible. Sting came with the cat in the cage. 
I, I still I when I when I saw that scene I thought of in uh the newer like the newer Star Wars where uh where where like Luke the blue has, milk yeah yeah, has, yeah. drinking the blue milk yeah <laughs> with, un, with unbroken eye contact yeah I, <laughs> <laughs> well and then there's also the um um there was the faux action figure like with like milking apparatus or something yeah. that somebody put up as a gag you know hey. <laughs> I, I, I still think that the, the, the best recent Star Wars is Rogue One, but, uh, which is written by my old friend Gary Whitta, uh, and not the least of which is because it actually made Darth Vader scary again for that last 15 minutes. Uh, but we're not talking about Star Wars. We're talking about Dune. And so, again, as uh, just like with the cat milking, Brolin is uh, uh, playing the um, uh, uh, Patrick Stewart character. Um, come on. What, what's, his, what's, his, what's his name, everybody? Uh, Gurney. 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 Thank Gurney. you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's brilliant Gurney. casting. I, I do wonder if he's going to be going into battle with a pug, like Patrick Stewart was, because that was a. a I want to hear. I want to hear. Yeah. I want to hear about Jason Momoa's tacos before I commit to this. <laughs> right, before, before I commit to this one way or the other, I got to hear how he says tacos. No, I but I like tacos. I do. I do. Friends and I do have friends in Cleveland who they named their pug Lido, uh, just straight out of that because of that. That really, scene. that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, if you if you look on the letterbox reviews, you would think that the pug was like a leading actor in the movie for all the people like mentioning it. But it is notable, and why I noticed again, I was like, why does he have the dog with him? Like that is like okay, that's. But why not? Also, because in Dune, dogs are apparently just dogs, and we got them. We got them. You, you can't to go into battle with, battle with a cat because the cats <laughs> get all skittish. <laughs> That's a good boy. He's, he's staying calm, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and, and last thing is that I can't believe we talked this long and, and we did not talk about how brilliant uh, Alicia Witt, a very young Alicia Witt, about the same age as me, was as Aaliyah. Because it was one of her first acting roles because as a certified genius, she was quoting Shakespeare and stuff like at a very early age. And she's had a long and storied career, including uh, Yosef Will Be Demented, uh, Sopranos. quoting Shakespeare in The Voice? Was she using The yeah. Voice? <laughs> what, one can hope. And, and some of these stories sound like stories that your friends tell about you, like when people get a little drunk or something along those lines. Yeah. But she is actually a certified genius and a musical prodigy. Also shows up in Twin Peaks as Donna's sister for those that and, do not know. And you can and she is shown uh even like over the in credits of certain scenes is just like you know doing a full on like piano recital yeah. in at least a couple episodes. And it's her. It's that that that's her and, playing uh, all that. And also in the greatest uh TV series ever made, The Sopranos, as the yep. the the D girl episode, which is one of honestly the best episodes of that show. So when Christopher is trying to get his movie made, yeah, exactly. It's a uh, she's uh, I, I'm a big, big fan of Alicia Witt. She's in an underrated season of Justified as well, uh, many other things. But uh, yeah, that was her first role as a five year old, and, and she was in The Walking Dead with Xander Berkeley. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Oh uh, no, I remember I remember seeing her in. Walkie Dead and thinking like, hey, is that the the D girl from The Sopranos? Like, yeah. <laughs> goddamn so Alicia Witt is who it is. Yeah, uh, and she's in a bunch of Hallmark movies too. But I I just I don't have time for that. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, the so but then come back to the summation of the 1984 Dune, whether whether you call it the Lynch version, the Laurentiis version, I will literally argue any side of it. 
Like I will argue that it's like an incredibly underrated film that people like do not appreciate. I will argue that it is a terrible film that's, that that like sw swings for the, for the uh, cheap seats and totally does not connect. I will argue that it does a little bit of both and is somewhat mediocre. And I have argued all these points all the many times that I have seen it. But what it is, to me, is deeply watchable. And I'm never bummed out when Dune is on. And I will always watch it, whether it's like, you know, the, the 20 minutes as we established is like the whole back half of the first book. Uh, whether it's like early on where fears the mind killer, you know, that kind of like, you know, voiceover narration stuff. I love it. I love it. It's 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 a fascinating movie. Uh, it, it, it there's a rare echelon of films that are in this that that again like I get it. I get it. All the sides of it, but I think it's actually potentially a little underrated. And I say that as a flawed vehicle too. It is absolutely objectively a flawed vehicle, but in a way that I think it also doesn't quite get the credit it deserves in in, in certain ways as well. And um, that made it sound like I'm being kind of wishy-washy about it, but I, I honestly do think I'll argue any side of this movie. I really dig it. Of course, it. you can you can hear Conan Neutron on his famous uh, podcast, Conan Neutron Vacillates, where he <laughs> every, every episode he gives a different opinion on a variety of subjects. I actually <laughs> think that his uh, review of Dune is like Jabberwocky's Dune when Paul suddenly can see all timelines <laughs> at once and he sees the all all movie ratings of this movie at once. He's, and, and he's able to see he's able to see the the six hour David Lynch cut. He in, is the quiz while he also sees Nick the Nick Paddywhack that can see the version of Dune that we all want to see. The oh, sleeper right. has awakened. Real, uh, really quick, I will. I do uh, just to, to hop on to Conan's uh, review. I, I will say that I think uh, like Everett McGill's performance in particular, I think, is very underrated, and I don't think he really got his due until. Probably, I mean, in, in not in, until like at least like you know Twin Peaks or people under the stairs. So, Everett McGill played Stilgar yeah, for okay. uh, no. So we have we have worm signs. He was also, even he was also in Under Siege too. Let's not forget yes. that <laughs> Under Siege too, with Unrecognizable, where he uh, he uh, uses pepper spray as breath mints yes, with a yes. weird like uh, weird like white hair whatever you call it anyway that's my my, my but, contribution so so i think dune is the perfect film for this type of show where you get a bunch of different folks with a lot of different mm -hmm. opinions because it is very easy and understandable to argue almost any opinion of it including one coming from the perspective of loving the books which again as i've established i've only read the first two love them absolutely love them but like it's a crazy ass movie i think we can all agree you know, just rails even, and rails of spice. And I'm probably going to yeah. close this out after that you guys plug your stuff by playing that trailer again, because I really just think it, it needs to be uh, done at the end of this podcast. But like, you know, the, the fact that that trailer, it just has like, doesn't really give you the context. It just continuously yeah. has explosions and like, <laughs> here's this thing. Here's some other thing. He's riding a worm now. It's over here. Okay. All yeah. right. <laughs> Brought to you by Don LaFontaine. <laughs> the late. Gene, um, uh, you have anything? No, but I will say this. Uh, well, in terms of plugging stuff, uh, yeah, just uh, watch This Is Revolution and, uh, you know, be good. And uh, make your friends watch This Is Revolution too. Or at least yeah, listen. Exactly. Because. Uh, 
because yeah, those guys uh, need to be able to get a salary from that. So we yeah. have to grow that show. Most, yeah. un- most underrated show in the game. I I should be going on when uh, Jason interviews Catherine Liu. I don't know. I mean, he's trying to figure that out right now. I think. Just so you can um, do your drop. I yeah. He he I, he he's, he's want, so was saying he wanted to bring bring you on. We have like a permanent production meeting on Facebook chat because basically Pascal is a boomer. I mean, a Gen Xer, so like he only knows how to use Facebook. The, well, this, I mean, well, I will to the. Uh, I will say this: when I um, Jason didn't know what Signal was, and I'm like, D- "Are you on Signal? You know, why are you on? Are you only on like Facebook? Are you only on Messenger?" He's like, "What's Signal?" I'm like, well, oh, he's not a journalist. I mean, you know, I mean, not, he's not a journalist. Are, he's, he's a rocker, not a journalist. Yeah, come on. Although I know no, it's Signal. I mean, I have neither it. am I. But like, you know, I've you know, I'm only a drunk ass DSA member in Portland, but I, you know, I know what signal is in them. We, uh, we use signal. Well, not only did we use signal during the uprising because, um, I may or may not have helped out a few people who may or may not have helped out a few other people, uh, not get killed by the cops downtown last summer. But, um, I mean, it just, just in terms of like, cause that's the, the kicker about using, fa- about using Facebook messenger is that much like with like Google IMs or Google mail, or Gmail rather, everything you post on there, or actually WhatsApp too, everything you put on there is grist for the the algorithm. And like yep. a lot of people, like I who I know with very well, is like, no, we're not going to do our shit through there. So it's uh, no, they let they let law enforcement like look at everything you post on. Yeah. So anyway, y'all think there's gonna be cat milk in the new Dune or what? <laughs> one chance, in, one chance in three. I can't we'll, wait for the cross promotion. Who will be? Who's going to play the genetic eunuch? That's what I want to know. Oh man, good question. I don't know. I, I can't wait for like the the cross promotion, uh, cat milk milkshakes at like McDonald's. That's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, the the, the blue milkshake. I'm looking forward yeah. to somebody uh, making a tabletop miniature game with Dune miniatures because I want to get a bunch of Dune miniatures. Oh shit! I was just say I'm surprised. I mean, yeah, the the big board. I mean, big uh, board game geek has the 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 classic one, but I don't. I'm surprised that like you know all the other uh, uh, all the other places have you know like either like Fantasy Flight hasn't come out with one yet, or maybe they're just waiting to get the license. All right, so Conan started with you. Sure, uh, Protonic Reversal. Conan Newton's Protonic Reversal. It's a music interview podcast. I dare say one of the better in the game. Uh, ProtonicReversal.com. Talk your it, shit. It, it's all, uh, yeah, hey, man. Um, it's all in all the normal places you get podcasts. Ed Kira from Black Flag on this week, which was pretty rad for me. I that's pretty. That. Well, that's pretty goddamn important. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you can tell that I'm excited about that, you can tell what kind of show it is, which is to say that it's not exclusively niche punk rock, noise rock, etc. But like, um, yeah, uh, it's it does. It's long running seven plus years. And every week uh, there's a patron for it. If you like the episodes, one dollar a month, you get advanced access. Basically, that, that's what it is. No, there's no exclusivity with it, which is probably a poor business model, frankly. And then also, since this is on YouTube, I always forget to mention the YouTube channel. Last year, I started uh, putting up on YouTube and actually doing video for the episodes. That's on there. Again, that's all free. Uh, Protonic reversal uh, for the YouTube. Uh, ostensibly, what I do is I am a guy that plays music and plays in bands, and that's been more of an academic concern because of the inability to do that. But Kona Neutron and the Secret Friends, uh, Bandcamp, 
ideally Spotify, all those normal things. We're playing the Wisconsin State Fair, which I'm tentatively very excited about and very stoked about the fact that there's a large gulf between us and the audience uh, because that's the only way I feel comfortable doing shows right now. Uh, Brian, and then knock yourself out. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, th yeah. There, there's a big crossover between, uh, you know, punk rock, ostensibly, whatever, whatever it is I do in sci-fi <laughs> as well. And, and I'm a huge um, sci-fi enthusiast as well. And so, you know, always, it's always an honor to be on talking with, uh, with Forrest about anything. All you guys, like, I seem to end up on all the shows that have literally nothing to do directly with <laughs> politics, which are hilarious to me. Uh, but uh, I'm always happy to be here, and um, I'm, I'm a fan of I'm a fan of the genre and a fan of movies. More so, I think the pandemic in the last year kind of reignited that for me. For a while, I actually wanted to be a, a not a director, cinematographer, and um, I kind of let that go, and that's fine. My, my life went a different direction. Like I wanted to. My mid twenties crisis was that I was going to like uh, quit my job and uh, teach physics. So I mean, my life you know. went in a completely different direction too. I wanted to be a cinematographer and end up as an editor. Not yeah. even, not even related. To, um, all right. Uh, but, but do you know who edits? Uh, who edits a lot of movies that um, we all know, including uh, Fury Road, as a for instance, as well as many others. Kira Rossler from fucking Black Flag. Really? Game of Thrones. He won an yep. Emmy for that one. The John Adams miniseries. It's why. So like, there's a the, the first. I'd say the first like 20 minutes of that episode is basically me like asking about all that shit because it's a it's hilarious. And the fact that like Fury Road lost to uh, um ah the movie with the bear uh, uh Revenant that year it was like come on really the one with the bear. Well, Revenant, all right, Revenant Revenant was was for for best editing. That bad movie was good though. Like it's fine. It's fine, but from a sound editing perspective, the oh, Revenant versus Fury Road. Are you fucking kidding me? That's yeah, true. I think I think Revenant was given a lot of uh sound token, design. I see, but I think it was given a lot of token uh um Revenant's fine Oscars because of because <laughs> because of like Leo not getting an Oscar, and then they were like, yeah. Oh, let's keep giving this shit to the Revenant. They gave, they gave that some pity Oscars, that's what yeah. <laughs> Because uh, no, every time he's been really good in a movie, another movie's come out at the same time. He gets that, totally cucked. Yeah. I forget that people have everything, by the way. I forget that people have like kids and like a life and you know everything. And they're not just trying kids to was kids. Yeah, not, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Kids, yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, so who did, did anyone not plug stuff they need to I mean, Andy, do you want to plug anything? Yeah, uh, yesterday I was on uh, bad takes my show and we discussed uh gunman with uh uh with, with uh c derek varn varn derek varn which is going to be a lot of fun because uh, i don't know if, if any of you have seen the movie gunman with christopher lambert and uh yeah, mario yeah. van peebles it's and patrick stewart patrick stewart has a mustache and a dodgy accent it is tacos <laughs> well he's going himself, with my accent. friends to get tacos <laughs> well, he's burying a woman in the opening scene, and he's like, "Am I a bad person for burying her alive?" And it's just like, "What's what are you doing?" Sometimes when I bury a woman, I cover her with dirt and feel like I'm making tacos. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody in Doom was a mermaid, and that's why the Fremen were collecting water so they could become their final form. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
Oh, 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 oh,